And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Back and with you till 3 on this Monday with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up, we'll play a little catch-up today on a few things. We'll talk about the conference realignment in college football and who's in a better position for the future, Clemson or South Carolina. Plus, Gigi Jackson. Is he going to flip his commitment and go to the Gamecocks? And should South Carolina fans even want him? I'll explain why coming up. Plus, we'll talk about Baker Mayfield going to the Panthers. Who's the most important part for the Panthers' success this year? Also, the real star for Clemson football these days. Get to that later on. And a huge series in baseball begins tonight with the Braves and the Mets. As big as a series can be in the middle of July, in the first half of the season. We'll get ready for that coming up. And speaking of baseball, new Clemson baseball coach Eric Backage will join us in about 15 minutes to see how the first month on the job has gone so far. Talk a little Clemson baseball this afternoon. All that and a whole lot more between now and 3 on this Monday. You can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays, on Facebook at ESPN Charleston, via email studio at kirkmanbroadcasting.com, or online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there, or you can even take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Just simply stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you until 3 on this Monday, Trent's on the Steel Wheels. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing good. It's glad to have you back. Uh, Glad to have you back, my man. It was a fun uh, week, obviously, but ready to batten down the hatches. We're getting close to football season, college and NFL. Here we go. Training camps open up next week. I'm feeling good, Luke. It's a rainy but good Monday here on the Marmot Day Show. Yeah, it's been raining the last couple days. It's been quite the return to the low country for me. (laughs) Stormed on Saturday, yesterday, rainy today, but it's good to be back. Appreciate Trent holding things down last week. Got plenty of uh, nice words about the Morrow Midday Show in my absence, so that's always good. Happy to hear, and uh, good to be back with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Let me start with this. All right, I go out of town. I come back, the whole operation's in shambles around here in college football. Now, on Thursday, let me take you behind the curtain first before we dive in. A lot of times in this industry, this is the time of year that a lot of people take time off because there's usually not a lot going on. It's considered a slow time. Now, I would also tell you those that complain about it being too slow are also the ones that maybe aren't creative enough to come up with enough time to, you know, if you need things going on to fill your show, I don't know, maybe you should find another way, another thing to do, another job. But 
With that said, this is the time of year that people usually take time off because that's slow. This is that you can't take time off during the football season. You got to take it off now when there's nothing going on. So I thought, all right, you know, I had a wedding to go to. It was a holiday, and sure enough, the final show that we were on air before my break, we got breaking news while we're on the air. You wake up that morning and think, ah, there's not much going on. It's a, it's an okay time to take off, and while we're on the air, we got breaking news about UCLA and USC, and breaking news about Kevin Durant, and then it's like, all right, I'll see you in two weeks. We haven't done a show. I haven't done a show yet in the month of July. And here we are in July 11th. It's good to be back. Now, in my time away, not a whole lot of other things really transpired other than rumors and speculation when it came to college football. But it was just uh, ironic and, and it was funny for my sense that, oh, of course, the day, I take, the day I'm heading out of town is when we get all this big breaking news. When I look back on it, you know, because now we've had about 10 days to digest it and you get all these rumors, and this is not a story that's going to go away anytime soon. We know that college football is becoming more and more like the NFL. It's what we always talk about. Free agency, transfer portal, guys getting paid, name, image, and likeness. And now this is part of it as well, where college football is moving from what was always a regional sport to trying to become a national sport, heading to the idea of having two main conferences, the SEC, the Big Ten, whatever you want to call them eventually, a lot like the AFC and the NFC. Problem is, the NFL is built to be national. That's the idea. College football, I think a lot of the appeal is the regionality of it. And now with these moves, you lose the rivalries. Even lose the ability to maybe travel to as many road games as you normally do. Especially if you're a fan of USC and UCLA and the closest game in conference now is going to be a a flight halfway across the country. Other than when they play one another. right? Not really ideal for the USC-UCLA fan. It's ideal for just the general college football fan. I'll be honest with you. I'm a UConn football fan. There's a few of us out there. I'm not an SEC fan. I'm not a Clemson fan. I'm not a Gamecock fan. So all this moving around, it doesn't really impact me. As a national college football fan, as I would consider myself, UConn's independent. They're never in the race for anything. Uh, They struggle to go to a bowl game. So I'm just a general national college. It's great to get these matchups, that we're going to get USC against Michigan. USC against Ohio State. That's great. Nationally, right? That's great for, like, the average fan. Just like in the NFL, when you get Mahomes against Aaron Rodgers on Sunday night, you're excited. You can't wait for that game. Just as an average football fan, you want to sit down and watch it. But for college football, from a regional perspective, you're a USC fan. Does it do a whole lot for you? But now they're playing against Rutgers in New Jersey? It's like, oh, okay. Well, they're on the other side of the country against some team that uh, we've never played. I don't know anything about. There's no tradition, no history here. There aren't a lot of rivalries left in the NFL. And there aren't as many road trips that you go on in the NFL. It's not as big of a thing in the NFL that road fans travel to all the games like maybe in college. You get an RV, you get a camper, you know where you're going to be. You go to Tennessee every other year, right, if you're a Gamecock fan. And you go to Kentucky, and you go here, and you go here, and, oh, looking forward to going to Auburn this year, and, oh, we're playing this team. Haven't been there in a number of years. Or Vanderbilt, and you know the city, and you know the restaurants, and you know where to tailgate, and maybe even have friends in the area that you see every time. Your team plays there, and it's not that far of a trip. You can drive to a lot of these places. In the NFL, a little bit different. Now, in your division, right, if you're a Panthers fan, yeah, you could go see them play in Atlanta. Maybe even go to New Orleans or Tampa. It's not incredibly far. But when they go play the Seahawks, that's probably not a trip you always make. When they go out of the division. College football is becoming a lot like the NFL in that sense as well. Aren't a lot of rivalries left in the NFL? We're losing the rivalries in college football aren't a lot of road trips that you go on as an NFL fan. There's not going to be as many in college football either. College football is becoming more and more like the NFL with each each passing hour. 
But the NFL is designed to be like that. That was always the plan. That was the goal. That's what they're shooting for. College football, I don't know if it was designed to be like that. Because otherwise it would have been this way years ago. But it was based more on amateur athletes, guys that will stay for three to four years. So you build that community. You get to know them. You watch them year after year. Right, That regional feel of your school, your little college town, built on rivalries, traditions, trip to certain towns every year, the tailgates, that's more of college football. And a lot of that is what we're losing in all this. Texas hasn't played Texas A&M in over a decade. Now, once they both get into the SEC, that's going to change, but one left the other, and we lost that rivalry. Pittsburgh, they're playing West Virginia this year for the first time in over a decade. Same idea. West Virginia goes to the Big 12. Pittsburgh goes to the ACC. It's like, all right, there goes the, what do they call it, the backyard brawl? Yeah, all right, that was fun. Hopefully we'll play one another again in 12 years from now. You lose some of the specialness to college football and all this. Right? We already have the NFL. That already serves the purpose. We don't need college football to start to use some, lose some of its uniqueness as well, its specialty. But it's not going to stop. The movement in college football is not going away. It's really just getting started. Look, we've always made decisions based on money. I was talking about this uh, in my week off uh, last week. The difference is it used to kind of be done in silence. There's almost like a shame to it that you don't want to admit that you were doing it just for the money. We all knew, right? Everyone's Go back to the, the start of time when we first came up with currency. Everything's always been done based off of money. But you weren't so out in the open. You kind of hid it. You don't want to be so obvious. You felt like a, a shame come over you if other people found out. Like, oh, he just did that. Right? It was just a money grab. He sold out. That used to be a popular term. You don't like when musicians or athletes sold out. We've always made decisions based off of finances. He just didn't always want to admit it. Now, yeah, we don't care. No longer hiding it. Right, that's the big difference. We're still making money or still making decisions based off of money, but there's no need to hide. Why'd you do that? Because of the money. Oh, okay. That's no longer hidden anymore. Why did USC and UCLA move to the Big Ten? Because of, because of money. Why did Texas Oklahoma go to the SEC? Because of money. And it doesn't matter that Texas and Oklahoma were the two most important members of the Big 12. They didn't think twice about going to the SEC. More money. UCLA and USC were the two most important members of the Pac-12. Eh, they didn't care about going to the Big Ten. More money. Turn your backs on the conference, on your peers, on the fellow schools in those conferences. Forget the rivalries. Oklahoma said, screw you, Oklahoma State. We're off to the SEC. Texas, uh, well, first Texas A&M did the same to Texas. Now Texas is leaving the Big 12. The schools don't care. They'll continue to make moves simply to do what's best for them, to make uh, the most money. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or that they shouldn't be doing it that way. That's just the, the fact of the matter, and it's why it won't stop. It's why it will continue. Their current conferences, the other schools in the conference, their rivals, even their sister schools in their own state, eh, they could all be damned. Right, we're off to more money, and I don't blame them. But it's just something that's going to continue to happen in college football or in sports. We focus on college football. Obviously, it impacts all of the sports. But in the week that I was gone in the past uh, about 10 days, I saw all sorts of uh, rumors and speculation about which schools could leave their conference next. And we're going to continue to speculate because this is not going to end anytime soon. Right, we're focusing now on the ACC. And what could be next for Clemson? Well, their contract, their media rights run for like another 15 years. Now, teams could get out of that. You could pay the exit fee. The closer we get, maybe the easier it would be to leave. Or... As one-sided as the seesaw becomes, the SEC is making all sorts of money, and the Big Ten is, and the ACC is lagging behind. Uh, the ACC last year made $200 million less than the SEC, $100 million less than the Big Ten. Right At a certain point, if you're Clemson, it may just be financially sound to bite the bullet, 
pay that fee to leave the ACC and go make the money back by joining the SEC at a certain point. Or maybe we do have to wait until the 2030s to see some real movement out of the ACC. Point being, it's not going to go away anytime soon. We're going to continue to speculate. People are going to continue to put out these reports of here's what I'm hearing. Oh, this school, they're looking at this school, they're looking at that, this school's interested. And it's going to continue and continue. And even once, say, Clemson, Miami, whichever schools are left, Notre Dame, once they join a conference, that won't be the end of it either. Not until the top programs are all in the top conferences together. It'll be survival of the fittest. It'll be like the Hunger Games out there. Until we are left with truly the best teams in the best situation, it's not going to end. The best programs are not going to stop until they have the best setup. The SEC is not sitting around now thinking like, all right, well, we added Oklahoma and Texas. We're good to go. They're going to keep going. Same with the Big Ten. And the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and the ACC, they're going to have to, you know, they're going to be left to try to figure it all out, piece it together. And we're going to keep grinding this thing down until you're just left with truly the best programs in the sport altogether. Right, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, the greats, they always feast on their opponent's weaknesses, on the vulnerability that they see from their opponent. And I think in college sports, the decision makers are no different. Right, Greg Sankey sees the weakness of the Big 12 and attacks them to make the SEC better. USC saw the weakness of the Pac-12. They're off to the Big 10. Right, the Big 10 played a role in that, of course, as well. You take advantage of the weaker conferences, the other programs that aren't on the same level. USC, UCLA looks around and says, oh, sucks for you guys. Sucks that you don't have the same pull that we do. We're off to the Big 10 to go make more money and better position ourselves, and you guys, oh, you can try to figure it out. Too bad you guys aren't big enough brands, and it's just going to keep happening in college football until the top programs get the best possible situations, and we're not there just yet. This is just the start of it. began with Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, if you really want to go back to like 10 years ago, the SEC and the breaking up of the Big East and the ACC added teams, but this is now really uh, the the big changes here moving forward, and it's not going to stop with UCLA and USC. We'll talk more about this throughout the afternoon, plus what does the future hold for Clemson and South Carolina in all this moving around? When we come back, we've got to catch up with the new baseball coach of Clemson. Eric Backage will join us. He was hired uh, 26 days ago by Clemson. We'll talk about how things have gone so far in his first month with him when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We're heading towards the All-Star break in Major League Baseball. Coming up later on this afternoon, we'll preview a big series that begins tonight with the Braves and the Mets in the NL East. But speaking of baseball, let's catch up with new baseball coach at Clemson, Coach Eric Backage, who has been on the job for just about a month. He's joining us now. Coach, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Luke. Thanks for having me. Doing great. I appreciate the time. Uh, Your hire was uh, announced about 26 days ago. So how have the first about four weeks on the job gone for you so far? Uh, It's a a whirlwind. uh, I think my head's still spinning, but it's been awesome. It's just been a a blast. And the first 30 days, jobs to be done, connecting with the team, hiring a staff. Uh, getting the word out to all the alums about doing a huge reunion, trying to get connected with all the high school coaches in the state, all the travel ball coaches in the region, 
and then get out recruiting and uh, doing as much recruiting as we possibly can. But it's been an awesome, uh, awesome three and a half, four weeks so far. Yeah, I could imagine. Now, you were the head coach at Maryland, then Michigan, now here at Clemson. Obviously, you started your coaching career with Clemson in 2002. What was it about this opportunity in particular that you felt like this was the right move for you here at this time? Well, it just goes back to 20 years ago, and it was my first opportunity to start coaching. And I think if everyone can connect with whenever they did something for the first time, and it was awesome, and just the emotional connection they have to that. So to come to Clemson, to get a start, to get so lucky to be surrounded by Jack Leggett, Tim Corbin, Kevin O'Sullivan, to be a part of that 2002 team that won 54 ball games, was number one in the country for most of the season, finished, you know, out in the World Series, uh, tied for third, and just, just everything, all of it. I just have always uh, held Clemson as just a special place on a pedestal. The high bar, it's the gold standard. It's just, again, it's just feeling so lucky and fortunate to get a coaching start here with the people that was able to do it with it just has always been you know that that type of place personally for me that I just always uh, had a high level of reverence for 20 years ago when you were on the staff with Clemson did you ever have that thought that hey maybe one day I'll be the head coach here you know I was just trying to keep up with uh, with Corbs and Sully and coach Leggett so you know I don't know if my my brain went there but uh, I just knew I was I was uh, very lucky. I even recognized it right away. Like, this is different. These, you know, this group of guys, uh, these are special people. And sure enough, they've, you know, gone on to a Hall of Famer and Coach Leggett and two future Hall of Famers and Corbs and Sully. Uh, so, yeah, it was just trying to learn as much as I could from them and just be the proverbial sponge. You know, uh, if you ever move out of your hometown, you go back to, to visit maybe years later, you see how different the town is, or you go back to your college for the first time a decade later and see how different the college town is. For you, uh, you were a part of the Clemson staff 20 years ago. Now you come back as the head coach. When you walk around the town or campus or just even see the baseball program, how different are things now compared to when you were last with Clemson 20 years ago? Oh, it's blown me away. It's the athletic department has exploded the facilities have exploded the whole town has grown i mean it's a testament to what coach sweeney has done and just with football and the notoriety and making the tiger tiger paw a global brand it's just amazing how the the success of of the football program has just boosted everything and uh that not only the athletic athletic department but the school uh and just everything has grown everything is has uh taken off and it's just it's it's blown me away of course i've got the the memories and the nostalgia coming in and seeing some things that are the same uh but just uh just seeing all the changes and the growth and the improvements uh it's just been awesome talking with new clemson baseball coach coach eric backage uh coach when you were at michigan of course you brought michigan to the college world series in 2019 you guys were the runner-up i i i know the big 10 what hasn't won a college baseball championship since the mid-60s a team from a a cold state really hasn't won in over 30 years. How difficult is it when you compare trying to coach, being a head coach of a baseball program up north in a cold climate compared to, you know, down here in the south, uh, say in this state with Clemson, how difficult is it to try to win big up north in college baseball? Well, you just you don't make excuses, Luke. I mean, you, you know, people make excuses about the weather all the time, and the one thing we did is we embraced the cold. 
you know, it, uh, we, we tried to allow it to make us tougher. We would go outside if it was above zero degrees. I mean, it just, it was something that was uh, more of a rally cry. You know, you, you can't get hot if you don't know the cold. I mean, we had that on the wall. Uh, we would tell recruits how cold it was. We didn't want guys that didn't want to be there if they couldn't embrace the cold. So it's just whatever it is, whatever your thing is, you just got to embrace it. And and we did, and we used it. Uh, a place like Clemson has no excuses. There's there's nothing holding us back. There's no limitations. Maybe the only limitations are ones we would put on ourselves, and we're not putting any limitations on ourselves. We've got the facilities. We've got the fan base. We've got the support. We've got everything. And uh, so I think the sky's the limit here. There's endless potential, and we're just going to try to unlock every bit of that potential inside of this program. I'm sure college baseball fans are already very familiar with you and your style because of the success you had at Michigan. You guys played in a bunch of big games. But for those that maybe weren't following, now that you come to Clemson, what should Clemson fans expect from your team in terms of the style of play? What should they expect to, to see out there from the Tigers under your watch here moving forward? Well, you'll see, you'll see a very fundamentally sound, a very explosive team. You'll see a high level of athleticism. From the pitching staff, you'll see a relentless attack on the strike zone. Uh, from the defense, you'll see, a, you'll see guys who take care of the baseball, who communicate loudly. Uh, offensively, you'll see a dynamic balance of speed and power. Uh, you'll see a multitude of ways to score runs. It won't be nine independent contractors up there trying to get their best swing off. It'll be a run-scoring offense. And you'll see team chemistry. You'll see guys all pulling the rope in the same direction. You'll see an entire dugout that's into it and has a ton of energy. Uh, it'll just be an exciting thing to watch. And we want all the young Tiger fans out to our games, want them running the bases after the games, want them standing for the national anthem with us. We just want... Every kid that shows up to watch Clemson baseball play, say, I want to play like that too. I, that's what playing hard looks like. And uh, we just, we just, we know how important it is to inspire future generations of ball players. And so whatever fans see on the field, I just want them to look at it and say, that looks right. That's how I want my kid to play. Yeah, I love that idea as we talk with Coach Eric Backage, new baseball coach at Clemson. You know, you seem to be a guy that, that does coach with your gut at times, but I know Michigan, you guys also use the, the little cards around the belt buckle with maybe some either analytics or just in terms of uh, positioning and everything. As a coach nowadays in baseball, how do you balance the use of that information and the analytics and then just going with, you know, you're a baseball guy, you played the game, just going with your gut and what you think feels right in that moment? Well, there's nothing wrong with getting information, but you can't just be it can't be just one sided. So perfect example is when we played UCLA in the super regional, the worst statistical matchup that you could possibly put in the game against UCLA in twenty nineteen was a left handed pitcher. But we had a guy on our team that was a captain and he had the best makeup. He was our toughest guy. He happened to be left handed. He didn't have much of secondary stuff. But we put him in the game in the eighth and ninth inning because we said, we're, if we're going to go to Omaha, we're going to go to Omaha with our toughest guy. It was the worst statistical, analytical, data-driven possible matchup you could ever think of against a right-handed lineup that all had power. But it just you had to trust your eyes, trust your instincts, trust your heart, and it worked out for us. But that, was, uh, that always reminded me that you know something I had heard – Coach Leggett and Coach Corbin and Sully say 20 years ago, whenever in doubt, just put the best makeup guy into the game or into the situation. If there's ever a doubt, put the toughest kid out there. 
And, uh, and that's what we did. So sometimes the analytics are great and they can help you win games. And sometimes you just got to throw them away. Yeah, certainly. Now, Coach, let me put you on the spot for you as the new head coach of this program. What are your expectations for this program here in the short term or even long term? What do you expect to uh, accomplish here at Clemson now moving forward? Well, you just it's how you define success. And we define success as did you achieve your maximum potential? So that, that question needs to be answered for every single player. Did they achieve their personally their maximum potential? And as the team, did the team reach its maximum potential? And if you can answer yes to those questions, then you should you should be able to say you were successful. And I think the way that the the, the way Coach Lee and Bradley Lacroix and Andrew C they assembled a very 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 talented group of players on this team. There's no question about that. I've been very impressed with just the, the caliber of talent on the roster, the caliber of recruits, and the way our staff is jumping in and continuing to add pieces to that and continuing to recruit and will recruit in the future. I just don't think there's any reason that Clemson baseball can't win its first national championship here by reaching our potential individually and as a team. A couple last things for you, Coach, as we talk with the new baseball coach at Clemson, Eric Package. You mentioned this in your press conference when you were introduced, but how important uh, is the rivalry with South Carolina for Clemson here moving forward? Well, it's such a privilege to be at a school that has a rivalry like this. You could put this rivalry up with anyone. We were fortunate to have Michigan-Ohio State when we were at Michigan. So just I, I've seen it for the last 10 years just and how important it is for the fan base, how important it is to our players and their families, to recruiting, to everything, uh, that when you are fortunate to be a part of a school and a program that has a built-in rivalry and it's it's an in-state opponent and there is every sport and it is cutthroat, and it is hostile, and it is awesome. That, that is a privilege to be a part of that. And so the way that we will treat it is we will respect this rivalry every single day. We will respect this rivalry by addressing it in the first team meeting, but it's not something that we'll just talk about the week we play South Carolina. It'll be a daily part of our program. There'll be shared language and the shared mentality towards this rivalry inside of our program. And whatever happens in the in the actual games, it's going to be something that we take very seriously, and our players obviously know how important it is to respect that rivalry and and how lucky they are to be a part of it. Matt Connolly just had a story about uh, you were saying you know that you got to dominate the state of South Carolina in recruiting. I always say for all coaches, you got to do a great job in your backyard of keeping the, the talent here in state. So. Let me ask you about that, the importance of uh, how important is it to, to make sure you guys do a great job recruiting here in-state for this program? Well, you know, kids who grow up in the state of South Carolina, they're, they're more than likely either Clemson or South Carolina fans, and it's, it's uh, more than likely something that they're glued to the television set or going to the games on Saturdays for football. They're paying attention to basketball. They're playing attention to baseball. They're seeing, you know, all the other sports have success, like the soccer team just winning the national championship or the softball team, how they've uh, been quick risers. It's just, it's just all the time. It's, it's uh, you know, there are, I, I look at it as there aren't any uh, major league teams or, or, or professional franchises at the highest level in the state. So this is, uh, this is such a, such a big deal. And so you got kids that are already passionate about, uh, Clemson athletics and that when you have the opportunity to get the very best players in the state that's just something that 
that has to happen. Uh, we have to get the best, whether it's the best two, the best three, the best four, whatever it is, we got to get the, we got to try to get the very best players in the state of South Carolina. And then from there, it's the region and the region being, you know, Virginia down to Florida, over to Georgia. There's a, there's a, a ton of good players in that region. And from there, it's keep going north uh, and, and select some of the best players from the Northeast. And from there, a global brand like this Tiger Paw and be able to hand-select players from different parts of the country, whether that's the Midwest or somewhere else. So uh, would love to say all the kids on our roster are all from South Carolina, but that's just not going to happen. But we do have to get the very, very, very best players from our state, whether that's the best handful of guys or however many it may be. Uh, But we are blessed to be in the region that we're in and how many great, how great baseball is in this region and on this eastern seaboard. And uh, fans can expect that's how we'll build our roster, like dropping a rock in, in water, and you see those ripples expand out. And uh, we want to do the very best that we can in the state of South Carolina and then move to the region from there and then start to hand-select guys from the northeast from there. Before I let you go, Coach, I do have to ask you, you know, all the talk these days has been about conference realignment, and we focus on college football, but obviously it impacts all the other college sports. Just as a coach in college, do you pay attention to any of, you know, what's going on in the sport with uh, schools moving around? Like, you just came from the Big Ten. They're going to add a couple of new schools here in the next couple of years. As a college baseball coach, do you pay attention at all to the rumors, speculation, the scuttlebutt when it comes to this conference realignment? I think every college coach pays attention to the realignment, of course, because it impacts you know, our conference and who we're playing, but I don't think you pay attention to the scuttlebutt and the rumors just because you can't control any of it. None of us are making those types of decisions. So, you know, for us, we'll, we'll play whoever shows up, you know, on the other side of the field. We don't, we don't care who we play. We'll play whoever, but uh, yeah, you know, certainly excited to see how the landscape of all of college athletics is, is shifting and changing and growing uh, and there's just a lot of there's a lot of things in the air right now. Transformation committee making decisions on potentially scholarships and coaching limitations. So there's just there's a whole lot to it other than which schools are going to which conferences. So it's a very exciting time to be in college athletics right now. Yeah, yeah, sure is. He's Eric Backage, new coach for Clemson baseball. He was here 20 years ago. Now back as the head coach of the Tigers. Coach, appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to uh, seeing, obviously, once we get towards college baseball, seeing how the first year goes, and uh, we'd love to catch up with you sometime down the road as well. Yes, sir. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate you having me on. Hey, pleasure's all ours. Appreciate it. Coach Eric Backage, new head coach for Clemson Baseball. They just got a big recruit last night, Dylan Head, who is both a pitcher and an outfielder. Uh, He's ranked 9.5 out of 10 on perfect game. Now, he was originally committed to uh, Backage at Michigan, followed him to Clemson, but that was a big get. Clemson yesterday, so Clemson baseball fans were excited about that, and uh, we'll see what else. I mean, we're just you know he's just getting started. Twenty six days on the job, but uh, appreciate the time from coach. Figured a month in, we got to check in, see how things are going. Appreciate him joining us. Hey, speaking of big time recruits, right? Clemson baseball added Dylan Head yesterday. Well, in college basketball, a lot of talk lately about Gigi Jackson. I was not, uh, uh, you know, I was away. I was on vacation out of town last week, but I was following all the rumors and speculation about Gigi Jackson potentially changing his mind and coming to South Carolina after all. When we come back, why Gamecock fans shouldn't want Gigi Jackson, and I'll explain next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it.
on the Morrow Midday Show. Coming up, why Gamecock fans shouldn't want G.G. Jackson. It's the more Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Appreciate the time. Last segment from Eric Backich, new baseball coach at Clemson. Been on the job 26 days. Appreciate him, uh, appreciate him joining us. Filled out his staff, getting some good recruits now, including Dylan Head yesterday. That's an exciting one. Big-time recruit, according to Perfect Game. Coming to join Backich at Clemson. Appreciate him joining us last segment. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. I obviously have not been on the air for the past uh, about 11 days since since June. Can you believe it's already, forget, it's already July. It's already July 11th. By the way, go get yourself a free uh, slushy today for 7-Eleven Day. 7-Eleven celebrating, I think it's their 90th year, which is crazy to me. They've been around for 90 years. Love a good 7-Eleven. So go get yourself a free slushy. I always love whenever I go to the movies, I always have to get candy. Usually get popcorn too. I, I really go all out. And I always get an icy. And I went to the movie theater last week and the icy machine was broken and it crushed me. It was terrible. So go get yourself a free slushy today on uh, National seven eleven day. Even if it's not a warm summer day out there. It's a slurpee, a slushy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it always hits the spot. But while I was gone, I saw all this uh, speculation, these rumors, these reports about Gigi Jackson reportedly going to flip his commitment with UNC and that the Gamecocks are suddenly becoming the favorite, the idea of, of him you know, staying close to home. And also reports of uh, the Gamecocks putting the full-court press on him, a name, image, and likeness deal set up already for him, and Don Staley and Lamont Paris putting the press on. Now, this is what people do complain about when it comes to NIL or the transfer portal. He hasn't even gotten to college yet, but the idea of kind of like tampering, you know, he committed to UNC. Supposedly, reportedly, the Gamecocks are still putting the press on him to try to get him to flip. And then also the idea of name, image, likeness. Theoretically, you're not supposed to have an NIL deal set up uh, before a kid, you know, even comes to the school. It's not supposed to be that big impact in recruiting, but we're seeing that happen all over the place. It's also what Miami's kind of being investigated for. So technically, it's kind of like against the rules, but nobody really enforces the rules. But for Gigi Jackson now, and by the way, he's been liking tweets about him considering the Gamecocks. He's also been liking tweets about UNC. Uh, maybe he's just an 18-year-old kid having fun who, who likes all the attention right now. I don't know. But people are looking into his social media habits and saying, wait a minute, he's liking these tweets about uh, flipping to South Carolina. And then I went and I looked, and well, he's also liking tweets about Roy Williams and about UNC and yada, yada, yada. So who really knows? But 24-7 Sports right now, they have their crystal ball projection. They put it at a 60% chance, better than a coin flip. 60% chance that he'll wind up with the Gamecocks after all. And, of course, we were talking about it at the time. We had his high school coach on the air. We were talking, where, who's he going to choose? Gamecock fans were hoping he'd choose them. He's the you know number one player around. It'd be a big get for the Gamecocks. But if you're a Gamecock fan, do you want Gigi Jackson to come join the team this year? I know it sounds ridiculous to even ponder. Right? You should never turn down a talent like that, or talent in general. And he could be like their Mike Miller. I say this all the time at college sports. You need that one guy that knocks, uh, that gets the dominoes going. 
It was Mike Miller at Florida. Florida didn't have much of a basketball tradition. Billy Donovan arrived there, and his first big get, his first big recruit was Mike Miller out of the Dakotas. I think it was South Dakota, maybe North, one of the Dakotas. And Mike Miller came, and that really put Florida on the map, and then he went to the NBA, and then he was the rookie of the year in the NBA with Orlando right down the road. And then that led to shortly, a few years later, right, Florida with uh, those NOAA teams, and those, they put the whole, like, starting five in the NBA, and they were in the back-to-back uh, title games and everything. Um, you know, we see it a lot with quarterbacks in college football. Oklahoma. Bob Stoops' first big-time quarterback was Josh Heupel, now the coach at Tennessee. He was the he was in the Heisman race. And then from there, it led to a Jason White, and it leads to a Sam Bradford. And then more recently with Lincoln Riley, you get one guy. right? You get a Baker Mayfield, then Kyler Murray, then Jalen Hurts wants to transfer there. When you see that, oh, that's a real option for me to go play quarterback there and make it to the NFL, that opens the door for that school for so many other guys. I've said the same thing about Spencer Rattler with South Carolina for their football program. If Rattler plays well this year and he gets drafted, now suddenly other quarterbacks look at the Gamecocks probably for the first time thinking, wait a minute, that's a realistic option that I could go play there, have a good career, be developed into an NFL quarterback. Because South Carolina has never done that with quarterbacks over the decades. And so for Spencer Rattler, he could be their guy for football. Gigi Jackson could be the guy for basketball. And it also would just be big for keeping local talent in the state. So why wouldn't you want this kid? Well, let me ask you, what would be the ceiling for the Gamecocks year one? This year you get G.G. Jackson. The idea is he's so good, he's only going to be there for a year anyways. It's not like you're going to have four years to build around him, and hopefully by year three or four you can go on. you got one year of this kid. What are the legitimate expectations for one year of G.G. Jackson? Do you think if you add him to, this, to the mix right now, with a first-time head coach in the SEC in Lamont, Paris, and a makeshift roster because everybody left in the portal with the coaching change. Do you think that GG to come in as a 18, 19 year old is enough to what win the SEC? Could he get you to the Final Four again, like Frank Martin a few years ago? It's a bit of a makeshift roster, first time head coach in the SEC, and then you throw in a star like GG Jackson. And I think focusing on GG is kind of missing the forest for the trees. It's like focusing on the small picture and ignoring the big one. Lamont Paris is in his first year as a head coach. It's the first time he's coaching as a head coach in the SEC. He's trying to build something. And when you bring in a star like G.G. Jackson, it ramps up expectations. I can give you a lot of examples of where things didn't work out in a similar situation. Steve Nash was hired to be the coach of the Brooklyn Nets. First-time head coach. Then you go and you get Kevin Durant. And Kyrie Irving was already there. And now Nash comes in. And expectations originally may have been a little modest. He's never coached before. But now when you add Durant and Kyrie, you better start winning right away. And by all accounts, Brooklyn under Steve Nash has been a disaster. By all accounts, Steve Nash as a head coach has been a bit of a disaster because they haven't won a championship. They haven't reached the NBA Finals. He's a first-time coach learning on the job. But you don't have any time to learn when you're coaching Durant and Kyrie. David Blatt was another one. First-time NBA coach in Cleveland. He gets hired in Cleveland, and then, oh, look at that, LeBron is coming back to Cleveland. Suddenly, expectations change. At first, it's just David Blatt coming into a bad Cleveland team. He'll have time to figure it out, put his stamp on it. He was coaching in Israel. Well, now LeBron shows up. Wait a minute, we got to go win a championship now. And we know what happened with David Blatt. He was fired after a year and a half, has never coached in the NBA again. Jason Kidd came off the court 
with the Knicks to go be the coach at Brooklyn. And they thought, let's get a smart point guard in here. He's going to build this team up. And then suddenly they traded for an old Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. And now no longer is it, all right, Jason Kidd has a few years to figure it out. Now it's, hey, we just made this big trade. We're spending big money. We brought in these veterans. You better win right away. Jason Kidd lasted one year in Brooklyn. So I got Kidd one year in Brooklyn, David Blatt a year and a half in Cleveland, Steve Nash so far, what has it been, two years, three years now? He's on the hot seat. Everyone's unhappy with him. And in some other similar situations of stepping into big expectations, I look at a Billy Donovan in the NBA, where Billy Donovan, coming from college basketball, the aforementioned Billy Donovan, comes to the NBA, first-time NBA head coach. I'm sure he'd like a little bit of a, of a learning curve. A little bit of a grace period. Problem was, he came to Oklahoma City, and they had just blown uh, the uh, series against um, uh, the Warriors the year prior. It was Durant's final year there, and it's like, all right, you got Kevin Durant. They were almost in the finals. You better win right away. And Billy Donovan has not won a playoff series since that first year. Got fired in Oklahoma City. Now he's with Chicago. Still hasn't won a playoff series. Isaiah Thomas was another one. Great basketball player, first-time head coach at the Pacers. He took over the year after they made it to the NBA Finals. They had Reggie Miller. They just made it to the Finals. Forget trying to learn on the job. You better go win right away. And Isaiah Thomas has always been a disaster as a head coach. With the Pacers, then with the Knicks, and then in college at FIU. It's easier to come up with NBA examples than college, but in college I could think of like Penny Hardaway, who had never coached college basketball. He was an AAU coach. Came in, got great recruits right away at Memphis. Has never really matched those expectations. And midway through this past year, he was already on the hot seat. People thought he was going to lose his job before Memphis got a little bit hot uh, in January this past season. Another one was Wade Houston. If you go back about 30 years, when he was hired at Tennessee, and in his very first recruiting class, he got Allen Houston. Great player. Problem was, right right away, expectations. It was the only head coaching job Wade Houston had. Expect You bring in an Allen Houston, you better start winning right away. They never made a tournament. He won five games his fifth year. He was quickly fired. Didn't work out. Frank Martin had it a little bit at Kansas State. His first recruiting class at Kansas State, he brought in Michael Beasley, who was the number eight player in the country and then went on to be the number two pick in the NBA draft. That was his first recruiting class. So now Frank Martin's coaching at Kansas State, the biggest job he's had yet, right? First-time head coach there. And right away, you bring in Michael Beasley. It's like, all right, you guys better be good. And they underperformed that year. And then that's a big mark on the resume of the head coach. We see it a lot in the NFL as well. Urban Meyer. There was no learning curve. You come in with Trevor Lawrence, you better have success right away in Jacksonville. If Trevor Lawrence wasn't there this past year, maybe the expectations aren't so high for Urban and it's not viewed as much of a disaster. Steve Wilkes was fired after one year in Arizona because they drafted Josh Rosen. And it's like, all right, I know you're a first-time coach, but you know you got a top-10 quarterback here. It was a disaster. He was gone after one year. Lane Kiffin. They drafted Jamarcus Russell first overall. When Lane Kiffin was hired with the Raiders, he was fired after a year and a half. Instead of a college coach, first-time head coach, he was like 34 years old, instead of having the, the runway to learn on the job and have some growing pains, now the pressure was ramped up. We just drafted Jamarcus Russell first overall. You better start winning. And he was fired after a year and a half. Carson Palmer was similar. First in college with Paul Hackett. That did not work out. Paul Hackett was quickly fired. And then he went to the NFL with Marvin Lewis, who lasted for 20 years. But Marvin Lewis's first year with the Bengals, they drafted Carson Palmer. Heisman quarterback, top uh, pick in the draft. And Marvin Lewis, now granted, he was able to coach for 20 years, but never won a playoff game, and expectations were high immediately. First-time head coach, doesn't matter. you got a top quarterback, you better go win right away. 
I would also say this year, Mike McDaniel, pressure immediately in Miami. You step in, they just traded for Tyreek Hill. You better win right now. Josh McDaniels in Las Vegas, you just traded for Devontae Adams. You better win this year. Otherwise, pressure is going to be on you real quick. Last year, Brandon Staley with Justin Herbert. You know, if a first-time head coach missed out on the playoffs in the last play of the season, you probably feel pretty good about that. But when that first-time head coach has Justin Herbert as his quarterback, Brandon Staley's already on the hot seat this year. They don't make the playoffs this year. He's probably fired. First-time head coach. He's in his 30s. Never done it before. Forget any sort of learning curve. You have two years right now to have success. So when you get a player like G.G. Jackson, expectations are going to be very high. Problem is, can Lamont Paris and the Gamecocks actually match those expectations? First-time head coach in the SEC, trying to piece a roster together, a program with very little success over the years. This isn't Duke or UNC. The SEC has gotten better. It's like asking a kid to grow up too fast. It's not really fair. Gigi Jackson removes any patience for Lamont Paris. You're going to have to win right away. You're going to have to have success this year. And when you don't, things will only get worse. Right? It's like uh, if you've ever been hired for a new job and they just threw you into the fire. It's nice when you can work your way up. Maybe you start with a company at the bottom. Maybe you're an intern. You work your way up. You get a full-time job. They ease you in. And then eventually you get to a point where uh, you're doing all the things that you want to do. Instead of, you're hired, okay, now uh, go meet with our biggest client today. First day on the job. This isn't really setting me up for success. You think getting a great player is the most important thing. That is setting you up for success, to get talent like that. When you're a first-time coach trying to build a culture and a program and build something for the first time there in the SEC, all you're doing is trying to speed up the process. It's not really good. usually doesn't work out. Ask Steve Nash and David Blatt and Jason Kidd and Urban Meyer and Steve Wilkes and all these other guys, Lane Kiffin in the NFL. When you add a big name like that, it just makes it harder on you. And a lot of times those cases don't work for the coaches. We'll wrap up Hour 1 next. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. As we wrap up Hour 1, you can always join the conversation by giving us a call, 843-721-9500. Let's go to the phones. Jim is with us. Jim, what's going on? How are you? Well, welcome back, Luke. But let me tell you this. While you were gone, your producer did did a good job standing in for you. Only to do an hour, so you know he's a rookie. You do it for three hours if you don't remember or not. And it's good to have you back because you become awful long-winded. I thought I was calling a national show. It only took 10 minutes. Well, your name just came up at lunch. Uh, the boys get together having lunch at noon, and your name came up because one of the players that plays pickleball is a little disabled for about three to six months. So I volunteered you to take his space, okay? So Jim Brantley, his birthday is Wednesday. He's the head of it. And Dog is the champion, so you got a little bit of a challenge. Now, Clip, he was the state champion, believe it or not. So, Luke, I know you're good. You're probably playing up in Connecticut, but I don't know what you would do there for a week up in Connecticut, okay? You didn't miss anything here. Bobby Harton's still Bobby Harton, and Trent is still Trent. 
Everything's okay here. I just want to report in. I listen to you guys. All right. I appreciate it, Jim. Always good to hear from you. Appreciate you listening. I did play pickleball while I was up in Connecticut. Let me tell you, I needed a vacation from the vacation because my family, they're very active. They keep me busy. I wasn't sent. I went home, spent a week with the family, love the family, love spending time. I get home maybe twice a year, but I don't get to just sit around and watch movies. I played pickleball multiple times last week. We played bocce ball, did a little golf, all sorts of activities. And I tell you what, pickleball, I'll gladly go out there and play. But man, I got out in the court last week and played some people, and uh, oh, don't be deceived by some of their looks. These guys can really hit the ball, let me tell you. But I'll gladly play some pickleball. Hour two coming up next. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, we'll get to the Baker Mayfield trade for Carolina. What does it mean for Baker, for the Panthers? Who's the most important Carolina Panther this year? Gets all that coming up here in hour two. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch you on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page, and you can, leave, uh, you can find the shows there. You can also leave a comment for the show, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter at Moro Middays. Or you can always join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500. Good to be back. After being off for about 10 days, I have plenty of tales for my travels that we'll get to probably throughout the week, maybe later on today, but we got a lot to get to throughout this afternoon because uh, we're a little backed up. Got to catch up on some things, including the Baker Mayfield trade, which we'll get to in just a moment. Also going on today, when you want to talk about Browns quarterbacks, past or present, we're waiting on, uh, you know, today was the day in which um, the final arguments, whatever it was, they were due by the NFL, by Deshaun Watson's camp. We hope to get some sort of answer maybe this week on the NFL uh, suspension of Deshaun Watson or punishment, whatever it may be. Josina Anderson has been tweeting a lot about this uh, of late. She's believed to be pretty close to the Deshaun Watson camp. Most of the information seems to be coming from uh, the Deshaun side. I don't know. Josina had this tweet earlier where she said, quote, I'm told there are only four women currently at issue in the Deshaun Watson proceeding. The NFL concluded not to pursue eight of 12 women interviewed. Regarding a fifth woman, the league tried to pursue but never interviewed her. 
The league scope is currently limited to four per source. That's the latest on the Deshaun situation, according to Josina Anderson this morning. I have two quick thoughts or takeaways. I just saw this tweet during the commercial break. Two things that uh, stand out. Number one, this is what I've been saying for weeks about another sports story. Or actually, maybe it was Deshaun. I don't remember when I was referencing it, but I said it multiple times. You can always peel back the punishment. You can never add more. And so, like, if you're a parent and you ground your kid and you could ground him for two weeks and then you could peel it back and after a week say, like, okay, you're good to go. And the punishment doesn't seem as severe, but, you know, maybe the lesson was still learned. Point being, when you have such a big number at first, anything less than that doesn't seem as bad. So when she says, I'm told there are only four women currently, right, only four. If the original story was four, I think we'd have a different reaction to when you read this tweet and say, oh, it's only four. Because originally, we've heard numbers about 26, and we've heard numbers about 66, and all these other big, gaudy numbers being thrown around that when the average person or football fan or Deshaun Backer hears, oh, only four, well, that's a big difference. You were telling me before is 26. It's like uh, the shock of, uh, like, the sticker. You ever go to a store and, you know, I did a lot of, I did some shopping for the wedding and I, uh, the wedding I had to go to, we were talking about this before I left, trying to find the perfect outfit. And uh, I don't do a lot of shopping. So I saw, when I went to the stores, right, you see the sticker, the new sticker price. You could get a shirt for 20 bucks, but then they leave the old price on there that, hey, this is a $100 shirt that you could get for 20 bucks. Makes you feel like you're getting a deal. Who knows if that shirt was ever truly being priced or worth $100. But they make you feel better because you think, wow, I'm getting a deal. A $100 shirt for 20 bucks. How could I not get this? And maybe the whole time it really was just a $20 shirt. They're just pulling a fast one. Anytime you see the big difference in numbers, the lower number always seems a lot better. So when we get the idea of, hey, 26 lawsuits against Deshaun, oh, the NFL is only focusing on four, it makes it seem a lot better. Where if your friend got busted and there were four different women, I don't think we'd say, oh, it's only four. I mean, come on, there's only, there's only four women that said my, my buddy did something wrong. It's only four. It's not a big deal. But when we originally get the numbers of 26 and 66 and whatever other numbers are being thrown out, if the NFL is only focusing on four, uh, your perception's a little bit different. They go, oh, only four? Oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was. Well, it's still pretty bad. If the original story began with only four, I don't think we'd be saying, like, hey, it's only four. Let him off the hook. It wasn't like he assaulted 26 women. He only did it four times. Who doesn't believe in fifth chances? But the other thing, too, that stands out, and this is just a random little side note, is that when she said only four. You know, my first job was, um, my first job, one of my first jobs, at least, I used to write for a newspaper back when those were a thing. Used to get it delivered every day. And, you know, when you were a kid and you'd think, what is my parent doing over there? They were reading it. That's a newspaper. They're flipping the pages. We actually still get a newspaper here, right? I don't, I don't think Bobby is aware that, there's a thing now called the Internet and uh, instead reads the paper every day. No, I'm kidding. I love reading the paper myself. My parents still read the paper. I'm a big newspaper guy myself. And uh, I used to write for a newspaper at one time. And I remember writing a story about uh, I used to cover high school football. And I wrote a story and I wrote an article about a kid, a uh, quarterback and the high school team. And I said something along the lines of he threw for only 120 yards, whatever the number was. It was something along those lines. But I used the word only. And my father read it, and he came to me. And my father is not a writer. He didn't work in the sports industry. But he said, don't use the word only. That's interjecting your own opinion. You're saying only 120 yards, like that's a bad thing. Maybe, that's, maybe the coach was happy he had 120 yards. Right, don't say only. You're putting these, uh, 
you're adding your own perspective or your expectations. And when you're writing for a newspaper, there's a difference between a columnist and a sports. You know, if you're a columnist, you write based off your opinion. What I was doing was writing game stories. I'm not supposed to include any opinion. I'm not supposed to say, like, well, the coach was a real idiot the other day. He called, he made this terrible. No, you just give the facts for the person reading at home to know what happened in that game. And I never thought about it. And my father brought it up, and that's something that stuck with me ever since. And whenever I write now, I don't do a ton of writing anymore. But right, I don't use only or you don't use those types of terms that add your opinion to it. And so that would be my other. Justina Anderson has been writing for sport, covering sports much longer than I have. So that would be my other thing. Don't say the word only because that's adding your opinion. That you may think, hey, only four is not that bad. But the average person reading that tweet may think, like, yeah, he's still being accused of doing something for four women. That's a big difference. So anyways, I didn't mean to spend about five minutes uh, a sidebar conversation on this tweet, but I did see this tweet this morning, or just a few moments ago, actually, from this morning, and uh, it brought up two things in my mind. Number one, that you see that number four, and it may not be as bad now because we thought it was like 26, or at least what we were hearing before. Now the NFL is only focusing on four. But the other part, too, was it reminded me of, I thought, a valuable lesson I learned about a decade ago when I was starting out. And it was from my, not even like an editor, not even anybody in the industry. My father reading it and said, ah, don't use the word only. That adds your opinion. And the, the quarterback only completed half his passes. Eh, you know, maybe for their program, it's a high school team, maybe that's good. Maybe they don't throw it a whole lot. Don't interject with your thoughts. And I would say the same thing here. Don't say there are only four. That doesn't, I mean, is that good? Right? If, if somebody can't, hey, I only stole four times. Oh, only four? Oh, okay, no problem. I only showed up to, to work late four times. Oh, okay. Oh, only four times? That's not bad. I think it's still a problem. But we'll wait and see what happens with Deshaun. In the meantime, what I meant to get to here, Baker Mayfield was traded last week to the Carolina Panthers. About time it finally happened. We were waiting for it. So Baker winds up with uh, Carolina. You know, a lot of times when you think of an investment, you think of what you get for it. You sell your house and you focus on the price you sold the house for. The real part of the investment comes when you purchase said thing. How much did you spend on, on uh, getting that piece? So like for the Cleveland Browns, Baker Mayfield wasn't a great investment. The idea being, hey, we got a draft pick. We got $5 million or whatever it was, ten million, whatever the Panthers are paying. That's not bad for our backup quarterback. Yeah, but you spent the first overall pick, and you paid him $19 million for this year alone, right? You gave him a long-term contract, and then you end up only getting a fifth rounder and, you know, $5 million off or whatever it was, half the $9 million off, not that great when you can look at what you actually paid for the thing. But the Panthers actually gave up more to be able to get Matt Corral than they did make Baker Mayfield. I like this move for Carolina. It's something I've been saying for weeks, if not months. They should go get Baker Mayfield. I didn't really know what they were waiting for, but I think it makes sense for the Panthers. Now you have Baker, who I think is an upgrade over Sam Darnold. Maybe not a huge one. We'll see. But I do think it's an upgrade. And you had the richest owner in the NFL with a team that has the third most cap space. There was no excuse not to make a move. And you're getting Baker for whatever they're paying him. And it's like uh, $5 million. Why shouldn't you do it? So I like the move. Plus, you get a motivated Baker Mayfield and no long-term commitment. Both him and Sam Darnold come off the books a year from now. So if neither one works out this year, all right, back to the drawing board. It is a essentially no risk. There's no risk here. You're paying $5 million for a quarterback. Hey, if he has a good year for you, that's going to be a hell of a bargain. And if it doesn't work out, all right, what's $5 million? You have the money in the salary cap, and you have a really rich owner. That's, he's not trying to pinch pennies here. And you have a coach on the hot seat. So I think it makes perfect sense for Carolina. 
Uh, there's no reason not to do it, which is why I was saying, what are you, what are you waiting so long for? Do, uh, go get Baker already before somebody else swoops in. When I look at the Panthers this year, the offensive line should be improved. Pro Football Focus had them ranked as the second worst offensive line in the league last year. Not great. This year, they've added three new starters, including their top draft pick. Should be better. Is it going to be a top 10 offensive line? Probably not. Will it be better than 31st? You certainly hope so. And any improvement in the offensive line is going to help the team get better. Defensively, you get J.C. Horn back to a defense that was number one last year in yards per play, which is probably the most important statistic for a team. I think that's the best measuring stick for a defense. They were number one. You just didn't know it because they only won five games. And you hope to get Christian McCaffrey back and healthy this year. That may be a big if, but you hope to get McCaffrey back as well. So J.C. Horn back on a defense that played well last year. You bolster the offensive line at least slightly. Christian McCaffrey hopefully back and healthy. And then Baker Mayfield plugged in there as well. Last year, the Panthers, their defense had to deal with the worst field position in all of football because of the amount of turnovers and short fields they would give to their defense. But they were still number one in yards per play allowed, fewest yards per play. Pretty good. And the Panthers also, in their last 20 games without Christian McCaffrey, are 3-17. and 17. So if you could guarantee me, and you can't, but if you could guarantee me the health of Christian McCaffrey and this defense, and now Baker Mayfield, in a bad division, in a weak conference, I'd be slightly optimistic about the Panthers. Improved offensive line, healthy Christian McCaffrey. You got DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson. You got a top defense in the league, at least last year. You're in a bad division. You could beat the Falcons twice. You know, Maybe you beat the Saints, maybe twice. I don't know. You got Baker playing for essentially his career. He wants another opportunity after this year. He's trying to prove Cleveland wrong. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Seems pretty good. Here was uh, Dan Orlovsky was on uh, ESPN's uh, Get Up talking about how he likes this move and thinks uh, Baker is going to look a lot like the guy that led the Browns to the playoffs a couple years ago. I think, first of all, this is the best wide receiver group that Baker Mayfield ever has ever played with. And last year we know he wasn't healthy. So that's the key part of this. I go to this defense, this defense in Carolina, I remember talking about a ton last year, is a top 10 unit. One of the better young defensive lines in football. There's Brown, Brian Burns. They get J.C. Horn back, who was their star rookie. So this is a really good defensive unit. But the other side of the football is a big part of this equation, Dan. I mentioned those wide receivers, D.J. Moore, Robbie Anderson, don't sleep on Rashard Higgins. They still have Christian McCaffrey. And I understand he has not been healthy the past two seasons, but I like to live in a world of what if he is healthy? He's still one of the best playmakers in all of football, not just tailbacks. This offensive line, eighth-ranked offensive line in football. They sign Austin Corbett. Their draft pick last year, Brady Christensen. Second year, they draft Iki Aquanu out of North Carolina State. The offensive line can't be worse. So I look at all those pieces, and I think of Baker Mayfield, a healthy Baker Mayfield and sit there and going, Wait, you mean to tell me that an improved offensive line, Christian McCaffrey, the best wide receiver group he's ever had, playing for a team with a top 10 defense that was 1-7 and seven in single-score games last year? If Baker Mayfield is anything like he was two years ago, the last time he was healthy, the Panthers are going to be a playoff football team, absolutely. Dan Orlowski with some high hopes for Baker and the Panthers. Hey, there are other quarterbacks that became, you could call them late bloomers, who got better after changing teams. You know, Steve Young was the first overall pick as well. Didn't work out initially in Tampa. Went to San Francisco. Did pretty well. Jeff George was also a number one pick. Took until about his third team. But years later, right, for Jeff George to finally start to cash in. 
Harry Collins was another one. Left the Panthers. Seemed to get better when he went to New York. Went to a Super Bowl. Brad Johnson started with the Vikings. Then went to Washington. Was a pro bowler there. Then went to a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay. Jake Plummer from the Cardinals to the Broncos was better with Denver. Obviously, Drew Brees is probably the first one everybody thinks of. Was okay with San Diego, but they drafted Phillip Rivers for a reason. They were ready to replace him. Goes to New Orleans, and wow, right, turns himself into an all-time great. I'm not saying Baker is going to turn himself into an all-time great, but we see guys that you know get better in their second stop. Need a change of scenery or a coach, whatever it may be. You know, Baker Mayfield deserves the blame as well. He should be responsible for how things have gone in Cleveland. But also some of it is, like, if you ever go out to eat, or I was just on a plane, I was traveling, you ever get that kid behind you who's just a real pain? You go out to eat, and the kid is a real uh, pain at the table next to you, but the parents are just kind of sitting there and ignoring him? Like, sure, the kid, he's the one that should be responsible for his And Baker's an adult. He's not a little kid crying at the, the dinner table. But also... You put a lot of blame on the parents. Like, what are you doing? Right? Do a better job controlling your kid. He's been kicking my seat on the plane the whole time, and you haven't said a word. For Baker, he's with the Cleveland Clowns. And you had three different head coaches and four different offensive coordinators, and then you bring in Deshaun Watson, you're doing this and that, and he had a play-through injury last year. Baker deserves a lot of responsibility for how things went, but also you kind of look at the organization. They're not doing a great job of nurturing that young quarterback, just like the parents that are not doing a great job like nurturing that young kid. And so, so, yeah, he's really annoying, and he's a pain in the ass, that little kid. But you know what? It's probably on the parents. In this case, like, not all of it, but a good amount is kind of on Cleveland, not doing a great job, like all their other quarterbacks, of, of, of developing that guy. Now he's in Carolina with Ben McAdoo. Maybe Ben McAdoo is the right guy to get the most out of Baker. McAdoo may not have been a good head coach, but he seems to know his quarterbacks. He was the one that wanted to draft Patrick Mahomes with the Giants. He was, uh, Mahomes was his favorite quarterback in that draft class. And then in 2018, McAdoo's quarterback rankings, he had Josh Allen number one. Oh, I think so. He had Lamar Jackson number two pre-draft. This isn't his new list this year. This was Ben McAdoo before the 2018 draft. He had Josh Allen one, Lamar Jackson two. I think he nailed it. Then he had Sam Darnold three. We could debate the rest of them. He had Josh Rosen four, Mason Rudolph five, and then he had Baker Mayfield six, which may be a little awkward because he's now his coach, and he didn't think much of Baker Mayfield. Here is his breakdown. Of Baker, he said, he's got an edge to him. I like that. He's going to lead, and they're going to follow him. I didn't see a lot of pro-style football in his college tape, and if you're short, you have to be able to make up for it in some way, somehow. And personality does not do that. I didn't think he was a great athlete. This guy is kind of like a pocket quarterback that is short and with small hands. That's what I worry about. That's what McAdoo said about Baker in 2018. Now he gets to coach him. What he said about Sam Donald at the time. I think the kid the Jets drafted has a lot of magic in his game. I think he's special. He's obviously a talented guy. He can make plays with his feet. I just like, no, let me correct that. I just have a hard time drafting a guy in the first round where you don't necessarily like the way he throws. He can overcome it. Guys have, but that's something that's a challenge for me. I'm going to be looking at that, trying to fix it, because it's a fundamental flaw, and I believe in fundamentals. The quarterback, his number one job is to pass the football. If I don't like the way he throws the ball, I have a hard time picking him. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what he said in 2018 about Sam Darnold. And now Ben McAdoo is in charge of coaching these two guys and trying to get the most out of them to keep Matt Rule employed. But I will say this. McAdoo seems to know his quarterbacks. And he's done pretty good in the past of breaking down pre-draft the best quarterbacks in that class. We'll see what he can get out of Baker and or Sam Darnold this year. But I like the move for Carolina. I thought it was... 
clear cut, uh, clear cut and uh, it was about time that they pulled it off. With that said, when we come back, who's the most important Panther this year? Is it now Baker Mayfield? We always focus on the quarterback. Will it be Carolina's quarterback this year? We'll get to that next. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Who will be the most important player for the Carolina Panthers this year? The Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. It's always easy to say quarterback, and it's usually the case. The most important player usually is the quarterback. I think that's the case for Clemson, for South Carolina this year. I mean, we could go down the list of NFL teams and be the case for most NFL teams. I don't think it's the case for the Panthers, though. Whether it's Sam Darnold or Baker Mayfield, I think the most important guy is Christian McCaffrey. Because I think Carolina... I think you only need a solid I don't think you need a great quarterback. I think you need a good quarterback, right? somebody who plays well, solid, but I don't think you need an Aaron Rodgers. As I laid out last segment, I mean, they had the number one defense last year in, in yards per play. Uh, with Christian McCaffrey healthy, that's a big boost for the quarterback. Not only does it help in terms of the running game, but the amount of passes he can catch as well. And that being that safety valve for a quarterback. I think Christian McCaffrey is the most important player for the Panthers. I think the numbers back it up. I already shared, they're 3-17 and 17 in the last 20 games he hasn't played. That's horrendous. That's one of the worst marks in the NFL. When McCaffrey has missed time, 3-17. and 17. His first three years, he was healthy, didn't miss any time, and they were about 500 over those three years. Not great, but not terrible. They were average. The last two years, he's been injured more often than he's been healthy. They're 10-23. and 23. You can directly tie the, the drop-off to uh, McCaffrey not being out there. He helps the quarterback. He'll catch passes as well. He's dynamic. The defense is solid. The quarterback can be solid, and Christian McCaffrey can help. I think he's the most important player for the Panthers this year, whether it's Baker or Sam Darnold. Remember last year, McCaffrey was healthy. Darnold looked pretty good. They were 3-0. McCaffrey gets injured after the 3-0 start. Darnold looks terrible. They win two games the rest of the year. So even with Sam Darnold last year, you had a healthy Christian McCaffrey. Darnold looked pretty good that first month, and they were undefeated. So even with the trade for Baker Mayfield, I think Christian McCaffrey is the most important part to this Panthers team. And you need to try to keep him healthy this year. That's a big if, if he will be healthy. I have no idea. Probably not, unfortunately, with the way things have gone. You don't get healthier as you get older or the more hits you take. But if he can be out there all season, you feel pretty good about that combination for Carolina. And you are looking at a pretty good roster in a bad division and a weak conference. By the way, speaking of Baker, and uh, I'll compare him to Freddie Freeman in just a moment. But there was this uh, this great story. I love this stuff. Uh, Baker Mayfield, um, you know, the, the, the Browns have said that he's uh, widely viewed as childish and immature. Then we got this story that Baker Mayfield last year, you may recall, it was Christmas week. And I remember because I was rooting against the Packers. The Browns were playing the Packers on Christmas Eve. I think it was Christmas Day because I remember being at my uncle's. It was the Browns-Packers. Uh, on Christmas Day, I believe. And, of course, we needed the, I'm the Vikings fan. We needed the Packers to lose, and Baker was terrible. And the Browns still almost won the game, but he threw like four interceptions. 
Well, anyways, he had COVID that week, or he was on the COVID list, so he had to be away from the team. He couldn't practice. As the story goes, the Browns sent him the game plan all week. They wanted him to be ready to go. They were hoping he'd be available to play in the game. So, you know, study up, be good to go, that if you're able to play, you could step right in. It wasn't ideal for the Browns to try to start a quarterback who didn't practice all week. Well, reportedly, the Browns found that Baker did not really study the game plan. He was playing the video game Halo for 10-plus hours, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Then shows up that weekend, doesn't know the game plan, throws four interceptions in a loss against the Packers. That's the story. People have uh, gone online and found that um, Baker, there was an old tweet from Christmas Eve of some random person on Twitter saying, like, Baker just added him on Xbox Live. Like, he was playing on, like, the day before the game, Christmas Eve. And then uh, people also found that a month in to Baker Mayfield, I guess you could find this information from their Xbox Live profile. Baker had uh, compiled eight days' worth of playing, two hours, 43 minutes. So whatever eight times 24, that's how many hours. Add two more. And apparently this was from the first month uh, of the game coming out. Baker Mayfield loves his Halo. That seems to be a little bit of an issue. Now, I also love Halo, and I play mostly sports games, but the original Halo I still play to this day. It's the one non-sports game I make an exception for. I don't know if I could play for 10 hours a day. But in Baker's defense, if there is one game, at least it's Halo, that he's obsessed with uh, playing all the time. If there was one non-sports game for me, it would also be Halo. I love playing Halo as well. Otherwise, Madden, maybe uh, MLB The Show, those are the games I play most frequently. I don't think I could play for 10 hours a day. Trent, what video game, and I think you've said before, you're not a huge video game guy, but what video game could keep you at the TV for 10 hours a day? I tell you what, Luke, it, it might be it might be surprising here, but I came across a, a game I hadn't played in quite some time. Obviously, we're low in the sports times right now. No, don't have too much things to watch. And so yeah. I came across PGA Golf, actually, on Xbox. I think I could play that, especially with my newfound love yes. of the game of golf. I think I could play PGA Golf, the, especially the Tiger Woods edition, the old school Tiger Woods edition, 10 hours. But I would never, ever play a video game for that long, no doubt about it. That's You know what? That's a good one. I think it was Tiger Woods 2004. I just Googled it. I think this is the cover. My buddies and I, all summer long, we were on summer vacation from school. I was in school at the time. They would just come over, and we would play literally all day in my basement. And we would just play Tiger Woods all afternoon. So that's a good one. I didn't think of that. You know, Tiger, the old school Tiger from like 20 years ago, uh, my buddies and I probably, we could have gotten close to playing for 10 hours straight. <laughs> I don't know why. Just that summer. We got obsessed with playing Tiger Woods. We come over, we play 18, we try to beat one another. You order like a pizza and you just hang out summer vacation uh, when things were simpler. And we play Tiger Woods all day. So that's not a bad one. But an NFL quarterback, the week of a game playing Halo 10 hours a day, probably not ideal. I don't know the what's the longest you've ever gone. Like if if a video game, this is the thing about video games. Halo has a great story. Yeah. So you can play the story up until you know your your brain kind of starts rotting a little bit because right. you're so invested in the story. If a game has a good story, I think that you know will jump over any other just kind of Madden game where you go and just keep playing games. Or even like with the PGA Tour game, you create your own person and you kind of you play mm -hmm. alongside all the players and everything like that. So that's a good story to follow that's the, that's the key to video games you gotta have a good story i'm with you 100 percent. which is why i probably never because i didn't really play a lot of those games there was one other one uh metal gear solid i used to love that game that was another one mm. i used to, i kept getting stuck the same 
<laughs> spot, and it would drive you nuts. You want to win, so you would keep going. So that was one game that I would get wrapped. I would look at the clock like, wow, I've been through, I've been trying to beat this for three hours. <laughs> That's the one game that. But otherwise, yeah, I'm with you. Like even nowadays, I'll play Madden. I'll play like one game. It takes like 45 minutes. I don't have enough energy to play another game. I do like one game. You know, I play one game at a time. Yeah, right, that was fun. Maybe I'll come back and play a couple days from now. I couldn't imagine playing 10 hours uh, in any video, any video game. That's just me. Let alone being an NFL quarterback. You got to go get ready to go out there and play well with everybody watching. I will say this about Baker, though, and it's the same thing I was uh, talking about with Freddie Freeman this past offseason. If you really want to be somewhere, you will do what it takes to be there. If Freddie really wanted to be in Atlanta, he would have signed the contract. What he really wanted was a six year or just more money. Baker Mayfield gave up, what was it, $5 million, $3 million? He gave up money to go play in Carolina. He took a pay cut. He could have tried to play hardball and say, like, no, give me all of the money I signed for in the contract. You owe me $19 million. But he didn't want to just sit at home or be Cleveland's back. He wants to go play. He wants an opportunity to be a starter. He wants to get away from Cleveland. So if that took giving some money back, he said, no problem. Send me off to Carolina. Here's the $5 million. I, I want to go start somewhere. When you really want to do something, you'll make sacrifices. Baker did. And so when I saw that part of the story, of course, because we've been talking about it, it reminded me of Freddie Freeman. If Freddie really wanted to be in Atlanta, he would have given up that six-year or some extra million dollars. He was already getting plenty. They were offering him $135 million. What he really wanted was a six-year. What Baker really wanted was out of Cleveland and a chance to go play somewhere else. So he's happy to give up some of that money in order to do so. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. On the text line, somebody says, Baker reminds me of an older Matt Corral a little bit. He will learn uh, with some uh, similar quarterbacks on the roster. He will learn well with similar quarterbacks on the roster in regards to Matt Corral. Yeah, Corral's supposed to still be the future. In fact, here was Ellis Williams, who covers the Panthers for uh, the Charlotte Observer. He was on uh, a radio show last week. Here was Ellis Williams talking about uh, Matt Corral and his role still with the Panthers. I had it on good authority from people inside that building that they let Matt know about the, the Baker Mayfield deal, they were on the phone with him, assuring him that he is still the future and that this is, uh, for now, a, a short-term marriage between the Panthers and Baker Mayfield. One thing that the Panthers feel comfortable about is the fact that, in NBA terms, uh, Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield are both playing on expiring deals. So they can assess their quarterback room comfortably next year, knowing that they have both either Sam or Baker doesn't mean they won't bring either back, but the, because they have Matt Corral's option there, they uh, again won't feel rushed, much like they didn't feel rushed during the draft or in June during minicamp. There was really never any urgency to get this done until that training camp deadline, um, and here we are. So I, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, of course, once we start seeing results, we'll have a better sense of about all this, but it's, it sort of felt inevitable that this was going to happen. Baker to Carolina, they've been circling it for months, and it finally happened. Ellis Williams breaking it down. Matt Corral still seen as the future. Look, Baker, if he plays well enough, you could sign him to a contract. If not, you move on. He's a free agent after this year, and you hope Corral's the next guy. It may not be the best solution for the Panthers or best option, but it's also not the worst option either. You got a veteran quarterback this year with something to prove, and you have that young quarterback who can sit a year in Matt Corral, and then maybe a year from now he develops enough where uh, you try to move forward with him if Baker or Darnold are not your guys. Uh, I think the Panthers, you know, it's not an Aaron Rodgers. You don't have Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. Uh, any of these other, you know, greats, Josh Allen. But it also could be, you could be in a much worse spot. 
you have a veteran quarterback uh, with something to prove, and you have a young guy that has time now to learn behind him, and hopefully it could be uh, your future still maybe a year from now. When we come back, it's time for Trent's Takes. The More Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. And the wind catches your feet, sends you flying, flying. It's It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Talking last segment about Baker Mayfield and his apparent video game habits. I like this text. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734, on the text line. Somebody said, isn't Baker married? Cannot have been that great at home playing video games 10 hours a day. It's a good point. You know, like people always say that about Kevin Durant. He's got burner accounts and he loves social media. It's because he's a single guy. He goes home, he's got nothing to do. So he goes on Twitter and sees what people are saying about him. Aaron Rodgers, uh, people say similar things, too. Uh, Rodgers, right, doesn't have uh, – he hasn't been married. He's had some high-profile relationships. But for Baker Mayfield, that's true. He's a married guy. What's going on? What wife is letting him play 10 hours of video games a day? She's probably not happy about it either. Her and the Browns were very upset. Hey, we do it around this time each and every day. He uh, held down the fort while I was out of town last week. But we find out what's on the mind of the producer. It's time for Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The Radio Cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, did my best, did my best to steer this vessel, because I'll tell you what right now, nobody does it like you, Luke Morrow. I'll tell you that right now. Even doing an hour, it was still, you know, nothing like the Morrow Midday Show. I'm sure the listeners and the fans around the world are happy to have you back, kind sir. I don't know if you were falling a little bit over the weekend, obviously not a uh, not a lot of live sports going on outside of baseball. The American Century uh, Championship with all the athletes and the celebrities and they come together seems like one of the coolest sporting events year in and year out. I watched a ton of it over the weekend and there are a lot of athletes out there like Steph Curry, Tony Romo won the entire event. I believe he's been there about 14, 15 times. This is third time winning the event. There are a lot of scratch golfers out there in the uh, sports world. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry's one. Adam Thielen, your guy, obviously in Minnesota. He was shooting in the 70s. I mean, there's a lot of great golfers. Tahoe is absolutely gorgeous. I would love to, I've been out there once as a child. Would love to get back out there again. The lake seems absolutely phenomenal. American Century, though, is something we need to pay more attention to because it was an incredibly fun event, so it seemed from the outside looking in. Well, I'll be honest, I paid no attention to it. So, yeah, I guess you're right. I got to be paying more attention. I did see the video, like, Steph Curry hitting a, hitting a pull-up yeah. three or something. Uh, it does seem like a fun thing, and you see a lot of these guys are really good at golf, these these athletes and other sports. So maybe next year I'll pay more attention. <laughs> well, just I feel like when you see athletes like that go out, obviously we can't compare ourselves to the world's greatest athletes like Steph Curry and things. But golf is a game you can pick up, and a lot of those guys, especially in the top ten, if they played every single day and worked out every single day to play golf, I feel like they could be very successful on the PGA or the Live Tour, which the PGA right now is in a little bit of hot water from the U.S. Department of Justice. So we'll have to continue to monitor that, uh, violating some antitrust laws. 
And second of all, good to have the uh, A-team back on Get Up this morning. That was nice to see, waking up to Greeny and the boys. And also, I don't know if you saw, obviously the NBA Summer League is happening right now. Did you see Miles Garrett in a uniform in layup lines for the Cleveland Cavaliers? No. He is the scariest human alive. Him and Francis Ngannou, he was doing windmills. He was throwing it down. He was hitting threes. This guy's six foot six, 295 pounds, and can dunk like Zion Williamson. The Cleveland Browns are lucky to have that gentleman because I would encourage all the listeners, Luke, to go back and take a look at some of those videos we've seen of Miles Garrett playing basketball. It is unbelievable and incredibly terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching some video here of uh, just him playing like one-on-one in a gym yeah. and i don't think he even has shoes on no he, he was playing in socks yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it looks pretty good he just hit i just watched this video he just hit a pull-up three yeah not bad he's an incredible athlete yeah i mean you talk about the the shape he's in and the athleticism it's absurd that would be a, a i remember when i was playing basketball there were certain guys coming down the lane and you were afraid to take a charge on them if miles garrett comes charging down the lane on a basketball court my goodness watch out yeah you can uh, just get out of the way do a little uh you, you know bullfighting uh we just yes. pull the red uh right. the red curtain up or whatever they call it that's also an interesting thing running with the bulls was happening this weekend would you ever do it no, never. No. Okay, good. Me, me either. I'd go to space, but I would never run. This is my thing. I said it uh, last week. Any animal that is larger than me in the wild, no thanks. I, I'm not doing it. I won't mess with horses. I won't no. mess with bears. Anything like that, Luke Mar. I can't mess with an animal bigger than me. I, I like that rule. I'm with you. I In my time away, I watched the new Jackass film. Uh-huh. And Johnny Knoxville, like he always does, uh, got rammed by a bull. He blindfolded himself. He uh, suffered, uh, like, brain damage from it. Yeah. And uh, it was gruesome to watch. I no thanks. I don't know how anybody could like Knoxville could ever do that. Keep me away from uh, the Bulls. I'm not. I'm never running with those things. No, I think it's just a nice rule. Like uh, you know, unless I'm getting on a horseback ride with somebody else, you know, that's guiding the horse along. We're going at a slow pace. I don't want to go horseback riding. If I get on that horse, Luke, what if I kick him wrong? You know, what if I what if I hit a wrong spot on his belly and that horse starts going 30 miles an hour and maybe wants to you know kick me off? Is sick of having me on on his back what am i gonna do in that situation the answer nothing it's nothing so that's why i don't mess with animals bigger than me that's just a rule of thumb in my life Luke Morrow. when i was home last week i was talking about this with my family my aunt and uncle were with us and everything they were talking about uh, like out in california i guess it is you could do those tours where you get on a horse or even like uh, whatever other type of animal and you go up like on a um, a hike mm, and yeah. they go right to the edge and I mean, as my uncle was saying, like, what happens if the horse you're on it just suddenly has, like, a heart attack or something? Yeah. Uh, you're doomed. You're falling off that cliff. So I'm with you. I'm not getting on a horse. I'm certainly not getting on a horse going up a cliff or at the edge of a, of a free fall. I don't even want to get on a horse at some sort of, uh, you know, open field outside. No. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't like those things. Yeah, no, and even, like, and I'm going on a little animal rant here, but I think about this all the time. People think, you know, like in Florida, you know, I lived in Florida for a little bit. You lived in Florida. Florida bears, even though they're smaller, like Florida people. They are unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do, when they're going to do it. Just stay away from any animal that could potentially bring you harm, folks. Even coyotes, foxes, oh. things of that nature. No thanks. I'm going the other direction. I can't do it with animals that are a little scary. Now, Luke, moving on some sporting topics. Jeremy Fowler this morning put out a list of the top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL via league executives, coaches, scouts, and players, because we all know Jeremy's absolutely dialed in with every little thing going on in the NFL. I don't know if you saw the list, but do you have any problems with the list? I'll go through the top five here real quick to see if you got any problems in the NFL as a whole. Obviously, all 32 teams. 
Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Joe Burrow at the fifth spot. Do you, do you Luke Morrow, have any problems with that top five right there? Probably not. Not any big issue. Okay. I was surprised to see Burrow top five. I agree. Uh, I don't know if I would argue too much with it, uh, but I was just surprised that he's already thought of that highly throughout the league. Um, I'd probably bump Brady up. I know he's like whatever he is, 44. He's about to retire. Right. But I don't know. Fourth best quarterback. I know we're talking, I imagine right now. I, I, Josh Allen may be the MVP this year. I just feel like I still trust a Tom Brady over a Josh Allen. Yeah, I mean, just say that word right there. In the playoffs, like, or in the Super Bowl, NFC, AFC, if they're playing against each other, Tom Brady versus Josh right. Allen, who do you choose? Yeah, you obviously, yeah, you go with the, I think out of respect, Brady could be one or two, obviously. So that that may be the one change. I bumped Brady up a little bit, but overall, no huge issue. Uh, Surprise okay. more about Burrow, but I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I think, yeah, you can make a great case. Those are the five best quarterbacks. Yeah, and then six through ten, Luke Marr, let me ask you how you feel about it. Matthew Stafford, now this is where people have a little bit of problems because they think Matthew Stafford should be above Joe Burrow as of right now in the NFL. I think I agree with Jeremy Fowler here in this list. I think Joe Burrow might be in the top five, especially after the season and the numbers alone going with an incredibly depleted roster. So six, Matthew Stafford, Justin Herbert, Russell Wilson. Last two interesting here because you don't see a man's uh, two guys on the list that probably should be there. Deshaun Watson and Dak Prescott at the ninth and the tenth spots. Do you believe Lamar Jackson should be on this top ten list as of right now? Probably. I agree. He's an MVP quarterback. Probably should be. I guess that's probably the only one I would think. Like, maybe Kyler Murray, too, but I don't know. I don't have a big issue with leaving him out. Lamar Jackson's probably the one exception. Otherwise, I think think those are the top ten quarterbacks outside of Lamar. Uh, I would at least take Lamar, yeah, probably over Dak Prescott at minimum. Put put Lamar ten, if you want. Put him in the top ten. But otherwise, I think it's a good top ten list. I think maybe Russell Wilson's a little underrated right now. Mm. Um, and Herbert, I don't know, Herbert 7 already ahead of uh, Russell Wilson. I don't know about that. But overall, the names on the list outside of Lamar, yeah, I think those are the top 10. Names make sense. Yeah, you could probably put Russell Wilson over Justin Herbert and maybe move Deshaun Watson, you know, somewhere else on this list who knows and then Dak Prescott yeah I'd put Lamar Jackson over to Dak Prescott as of right now I mean the guy you know it was an MVP led the Ravens to a number one seed in the AFC a lot more than Dak Prescott has done as the Dallas quarterback I apologize but that's just the truth and Luke a thing that's been giving me a headache since we got the news about 10 12 days ago is Kevin Durant where is he going to go Phoenix and Miami were the top two teams for him I wanted to ask you Luke because I've kind of been going through it in my head Durant came out and said that he wouldn't go to Miami if Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, and Bam Adebayo were not there. And immediately in my head, I said, okay, well, Kyle Lowry was immediately on my trade, you know, uh, block as soon as Kevin Durant said he wanted to go to the Miami Heat. I said, you can give uh, Kyle Lowry, Hero, get him out of here. Duncan Robinson, sure, send him out of here, no problem. Struess, get him out of here. We don't need him in a couple picks to get Kevin Durant. I thought that was awesome. But taking Kyle Lowry out of that equation, what do the Miami Heat have to give up? Not a lot. If you don't want to give up Jimmy Butler, which you can't as of right now, he is the staple of this organization uh, as of 2022, you don't want to give up Bam Adebayo because those three with Kevin Durant will be absolutely incredible. Who can you give up? I don't think there's enough for the Heat to give up and especially flip it over to the Suns side. The only way the Nets are going to accept a trade with the Suns is if Devin Booker is involved going to Brooklyn. And personally, Luke, I do not think I see Devin Booker leaving the Phoenix Suns, especially because he just signed a max extension. 
Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I like Kevin Durant as a basketball player. I think he's a little delusional. This is the thing that players always struggle with. Uh, Deshaun Watson went through this a little bit as well. You want to get traded to a team because you're basing it off of the roster they currently have, but you never consider that they're going to have to give up some good pieces to get you because you're a good player. Right. So for Kevin Durant to say, like, I want to play for Miami, but they better have this guy. Like, then who are they trading to get you? They have to give up something. And players never consider this uh, about what the roster is going to look like after they get you because they're going to have to either give up salary cap space, they can't sign other guys, or they're going to have to trade away players to bring you in. Guys that demand trades or, or try to choose where they go never consider that aspect of it. To get a Kevin Durant, I would imagine you have to give up a pretty good amount, especially like in the NFL, the Ravens right now are ticked off at Jimmy Haslam and the Browns because they gave Deshaun Watson that huge contract, and now Lamar Jackson wants the same thing or even better. Rudy Gobert screwed up everything in the NBA oh because it took like five draft picks to get Rudy Gobert to Minnesota. And four players. Yeah. Four players and five draft picks. Yeah, right. Nine pieces. <laughs> and that's for Rudy Gobert. So now if you're trying to uh, get Kevin Durant, if you're Brooklyn, that's my barometer as well. Like, hey, this is what it took to get Gobert. We're offering you Durant. So it's going to take more than that. And good luck to any uh, sort of team really being able to put that together. And then if they do, good luck to Durant going to a team that just had to trade, you know, five players and five draft picks. Probably not going to be a great landing spot for you. That's why, like, on social media today, because there was support uh, from Woj that said uh, the Nets are asking too much for Kevin Durant, and everybody's just tweeting back at Woj. His tweet about the uh, the Rudy Gobert trade was like, Rudy Gobert is getting this much to be traded? What does Kevin Durant have? I mean, after I saw the Rudy Gobert trade, I said, we got to give up the entire Miami. You have yeah, to give up right. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and Kyle Lowry to go get Kevin Durant. That'd be a minimum, it seems like, with these trades happening right now. And I'm glad the Nets are are playing it this way yes uh you should be asking for that much for a guy like durant and number two you also shouldn't give in to your star that easily play hardball don't make it easy for him to leave and get what he is worth to make it worthwhile for your team stop letting these guys hold these teams hostage so uh i like it from the nets perspective we'll see if they ever work out a deal and what that deal would bring back to brooklyn because you'd imagine it'd have to be a ton but we'll see in the meantime we'll wrap up our two next it's the more midday show Right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up Hour 2 of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. The real star for Clemson football apparently is their defensive tackles coach, Nick Eason. First six months on the job, they got him from Auburn. He's the new uh, D uh, tackle coach and run game coordinator for the defense. First six months on the job, here's who he's brought in. Four-star defensive lineman Caden Story out of Alabama. Four-star defensive lineman Vic Burley out of Georgia. Four-star defensive lineman A.J. Hoffler out of Georgia. Four-star defensive lineman um, uh, Steph Green out of Georgia. And then just added five-star defensive lineman Peter Woods out of Alabama, who chose Clemson over Alabama. These are all guys for 2023, except Caden Story is 2022. So that's one, two, three, four. Four defensive linemen in the 2023 class that are four or five stars. Nick Eason doing that on the defensive line in the first six months. Pretty good. Clemson right now is the number four recruiting class for 2023. Most notably on that defensive line, which they've been so good at defensively in recent years. 
when you lost Brent Venables and even Tony Elliott, some of the other guys, the concern not only was, you know, the coordinating the defense and calling the plays and everything, but also just in terms of, you know, the job, uh, the shoes that they have to fill recruiting-wise. And it turns out the biggest move of the offseason, forget the coaches you lost, the biggest move is bring in Nick Eason from Auburn to run that defensive line and to help uh, recruit those kids as well. He's knocking out of the park right now. He's the star of Clemson these days. Hour three coming up next. It's the more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. WTMZ 98.9 FM, WTMZ 910 AM and 94.7 FM, W234CD, Dorchester Terrace, Brentwood, Charleston. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We'll circle back to Gigi Jackson, plus all the moving going on in college football. Where does that leave Clemson and South Carolina in the future? And we'll also get ready for a big baseball series beginning tonight with the Braves and the Mets. Looking forward to it as they play the next couple of nights with first place in the NL East on the line as we head into the All-Star break. Coming up next week, a week from today, there'll be about no live sports going on. Maybe some summer league for the NBA, or I don't know, maybe some tennis going on. I have no idea. That time of year. Hey, if you ever miss anything from the show, catch on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page where you can find the show on demand. Plus, you can leave a comment for the show right there, charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page. You can also get to us on Twitter at Moro Middays. You can text the show, 843-608-1734. Or join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500 to give us a call. Good to be back. I was off all last week, uh, off for about 10 days. And uh, so hopefully you had a great July 4th, a week ago today. Uh, for me, it feels even longer than uh, just a week ago. We were celebrating July 4th. Hopefully you had a great July 4th holiday and a weekend. And you're having a great summer, hopefully. Trent, where are you on fireworks? Are you into, uh, you know, come July 4th, you're big into the fireworks? Not necessarily shooting them off. We've got to be careful. But are you into the, the fireworks shows? Are you a fan of fireworks? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a cool thing on July 4th where it seems like everybody in this great country is shooting off fireworks at the same time. Can get a little loud. There's no doubt about it. As I age a little, you know, <laughs> year after year, it was 1, 2 in the morning on July 5th, obviously. And I said, okay, what are we doing? You know, let's let's wrap it up, folks. we got work tomorrow. Come on. What are we doing? Now I'm a big firework guy. There was a guy couple of uh, uh, houses down from us when I was growing up would spend like $10,000 on fireworks Ooh. every single year, invite the entire neighborhood. They'd have a big barbecue and everything and put on a 45 minute fireworks show. That was incredible. So I definitely have a lot of good memories from fireworks, but they do get out of hand sometimes. Yeah, I'm with you. I loved it as a kid. I think 
like you said, the older you get, the less of a fan you become of the fireworks. And then you really are upset about the noise is the big issue. <laughs> For me, maybe I'm jaded from my time in minor league baseball where every Friday and Saturday the team I worked for would shoot off fireworks. Right. And then you go on the road, and they usually do fireworks on Saturday. I'm sure the River Dogs do the same thing. So I have seen hundreds of fireworks shows. We went to go see some fireworks, my family and uh, myself, for July 4th. They were, it was a terrible display. It was a terrible fireworks show that we saw. And then, of course, you see them all over the place. You look outside your window, you see fireworks. All, so we got our fair share. But the one we actually went to go see in person was horrendous. It was an embarrassment to fireworks shows. What? Oh, it's terrible. No. Uh, terrible. But I'll say that uh, just in general, I, I've i kind of lost that uh, childish appeal to fireworks. Sure. Uh, it just doesn't, I've seen so many shows. You've seen one fireworks show. I think you've seen them all. And no, that, that is a good point where how many color combinations yeah. can we have? You know, how many different ladybugs can we have up in the air before it gets a little, you know, repetitive? I understand Absolutely. that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, the same things. They shoot them off and it's, uh, they all blow up in different colors in like a circle. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it. And then uh, I'll tell you what, though, these uh, I'm really impressed by the ones that um, these professionals that set them up. And then I don't know how they I, I, I don't work with fireworks, so I don't know how it works. Well, you don't. You no, don't yeah. The fireworks shocker. Business. Yeah. Shocker here. <laughs> but uh, the way that they set it up where it I, I don't feel like there's somebody there the whole time lighting different fireworks. They, it's like a timed performance and the way they shoot them off. And uh, how can they shoot on like different angles? And I mean, I, some of the things they can do are pretty cool. But in terms of the actual fireworks like exploding in the air and you're watching, we need to come up with some new ideas of different types of fireworks. The ones so that they get that, like, can actually make the outline of, uh, Ooh, yeah. like, a character or something. Those like, if you go to Disney, like, how they do that, I have no idea how you make a firework that's going to shoot off and it's going to make this thing in the sky. I don't know. But uh, I think I'm over the fireworks. See, they all look the same. The, the, I'll tell you what. The Disney fireworks show is undefeated. Yeah. will always be undefeated. They do that with the light show now. And the mm -hmm. light, I think I was, I was there maybe four or five years ago, you know, and they do it at midnight where everybody comes out. And, you know, it's a lot of parents and young adults. So everybody's having a good time. And then they do the fireworks. And it is. It's incredible. Yeah. I was uh, at Disney for New Year's about, I don't know, five, six years ago. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, the fireworks are, are remarkable. And I can only imagine how much that fireworks show costs. <laughs> But uh, that's pretty good. I've heard I've heard a million a night is uh, really? is a number because you got to think of the light show that they do as well along with the fireworks. That was the number that was put out to me uh, from some people that are kind of inside the the biz over there. A million dollars a night to put on those firework and light shows. That's what Mickey told you. That's what Mickey told yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Actually, many came over and said, "I got he's calling, waiting for you." And so, yeah, I just answered. Yeah. He said about a million dollars. That's a day. right. Yeah, Goofy thought it was closer to maybe seventy-five, a hundred thousand. Yeah, Walt called me, you know, and said, "Hey, yeah. this is what's going on right now. This is how much we're paying." Yeah, well, he's uh, in from his freezer. He's calling <laughs> you, telling you what's going on. That's absurd, a million dollars. But that's a pretty good show. I just think in general, I know you, you, people aren't happy about the time of day or the noise. People are shooting them off all night. To me, I, look, I'm I I'm very patriotic. I love the celebration, but uh, you sit there, it's like, eh. Same fireworks show every time. You sit down, you watch it. I don't see the big thrill anymore. But that's just me. Hopefully, you still had a great July 4th nonetheless. It was nice to uh, have a few days off. Good to be back. Plenty to get to. And I talked about this earlier with uh, Gigi Jackson. There's a couple of things that we're waiting on in sports. Right now, it's kind of like the waiting period. And as they say, the waiting is the hardest part. But you're waiting to see uh, what happens with Gigi Jackson. Now, if you're a Gamecock fan, is he going to flip 
We have to wait around and wait for years to see what happens in college football with all the realignment and the moving and the shaking. And in the NBA, we talked about this last hour, but you're going to have to wait around to see what, if anything, comes from the Kevin Durant trade. So while we don't have a ton of live sports going on right now, even baseball, the one sport that's going on, baseball's such a long season that you even have to wait around and see, like, okay, are they going to be able to keep this up all year? Are they going to stay healthy? Are they going to, you know, the Braves have the best record in baseball since June 1st. Are they going to keep it up? The Mets now have DeGrom and Scherzer coming back. Are they going to play? Baseball's so long that a lot of it is, is waiting. Orioles fans have been waiting for this. They just won eight in a row. They're in the wild card race now. Mariners just won eight in a row. They're in the wild card race. Their fans have been waiting for this hot streak for three months. So my point being, right now in the sports world, there's not a lot of live sports, but there's a lot of waiting. We're waiting on football to come back. We're waiting on what's going to happen in the future of football. What's Clemson going to do? What about Notre Dame? We're waiting to see if Kevin Durant's going to be moved. We're waiting to see what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson this week and his punishment. And then with college basketball, if you're a Gamecock fan especially or a UNC fan, you're waiting to see, is Gigi Jackson going to change his mind? And the crystal ball projection on 24-7 sports where they try to predict how these things are going to play out, right now they put it a 60% chance he will wind up with the Gamecocks. Now I talked about this earlier. We were just talking about fireworks. Uh, this is a bit of a firecracker, I guess. You could call it a hot take. I was off for 10 days. I come back with a, a big opinion about if you're the Gamecocks, I don't know if you want Gigi Jackson to come in in the first year of Lamont Paris, which sounds like uh, the counterintuitive. It sounds like the opposite of what you should hope for. You always want a great talent, and this kid's number one in terms of recruits here in the state, and he's one of the best uh, players in his class in the country. Why wouldn't you want a kid like this? Problem is, when you have a first-time head coach trying to build something, he's never been a head coach in the SEC. The Gamecocks are not UNC or Duke that you can step in and win right away. you got to build the foundation. And when you get a GG Jackson year one, you throw that foundation right out the window because now you got to win right away. And it just changes everything. And now it's like uh, trying to drink water out of a fire hose. Uh, the expectations and what you have to live up to. And I gave you countless examples earlier. But when you look at basketball, it's easy to come up with examples in the NBA more so than college because a lot of times in college you don't get a big-time recruit your first year. You're behind the eight ball. You were just hired. Everybody else has been working on their classes for years. You oftentimes don't get that guy the first year. The first recruiting class is usually horrendous for these coaches. And now, especially with the transfer portal, everybody's off the roster. You just got to try to fill spots. That's what Lamont Paris has been doing. But in the NBA, you look at somebody like a Steve Nash coaching for the first time, and you would think, well, first time because he's never done it before, right? Let's give it, let's have a little patience, see how he does. He's got to learn on the fly. And then they went out, and after hiring Nash, right, you bring in Kevin Durant, and uh, you already have Kyrie there, and it's like, all right, well, forget that. Forget learning on the fly. you got to go win a championship this year. And Nash has been viewed as a bit of a disaster on the hot seat. David Blatt was another one. Hired in Cleveland, first time coaching as a head coach in the NBA. Then suddenly LeBron comes back to Cleveland. And it's like, all right, forget, you know, having a few years to build this thing up. you got to win right now. Jason Kidd lasted one year in Brooklyn. He was hired, fresh off the basketball court, first-time head coach. Then they traded for Pierce and Garnett. It's like, all right, forget you know the learning curve. You better go win this year. The NFL, we see it all the time. You bring in a new coach. They draft a top-end quarterback talent, and now there's no sort of grace period to turn things around. Your Urban Meyer or Trevor Lawrence, forget trying to learn what it's like to coach in the NFL. you got a generational quarterback. you got to go win some games. 
Lane Kiffin was the first-time head coach at any level, 34 years old, whatever he was. They drafted Jamarcus Russell, and it didn't matter that Jamarcus Russell was a lousy quarterback. The expectations were, we just took the number one quarterback in this draft, picked him first overall, you better go win some games. And Lane Kiffin was out after a year and a half. Steve Wilkes with Josh Rosen out after a year. Brandon Staley may be out after two years with Justin Herbert. The pressure is up on Mike McDaniel and Josh McDaniels this year. Mike McDaniel's never been a head coach before. There's going to be some pressure on Miami to succeed this season. Instead of, ah, it's his first time. Give him a year or two to figure it out. That's not the case. And if Gigi Jackson comes to South Carolina, it won't be the case for Lamont Paris. You're going to have to win. Problem is, right, you you, um, weigh the, the risk and the reward. Like, what would be realistic expectations for one year of Gigi Jackson? Would you win the SEC? Will you be better than Kentucky if you just add Gigi? I mean, look at the rest of the roster, first-time head coach. We don't know what he's going to be like in the SEC. Just simply getting Jackson, is that enough? Like, all right, we're better than Kentucky this year. And Auburn and Tennessee and all these other schools, are you going to make a run in the tournament? Are you even going to get to the tournament? Is it worth it to disrupt everything for that one year when the ceiling still isn't all that high for that one year? Or just let a guy kind of, you know, build his own way, build his program up, have some patience, work your way up to where you want to be. It's like when you get hired in a new job. You got to work. They don't throw you in the first day, throw you into the fire. You got to build your your way up to eventually getting to that point where you're performing at that high level. You don't hire somebody off the street, throw them in and say, all right, give us three hours on the radio today. It's not going to go well. You work your way up to that point. For the Gamecocks, under Lamont Paris, you try to work your way up to where you want to go. You throw in Gigi Jackson, forget that, right? Patience goes out the window, pressure goes up, expectations increase, and you got to win right now for a guy who's just trying to figure it out in the SEC with a makeshift roster. I'd be curious to see what comes of this, if anything, if he does flip, if he does change his mind, if he decommits from UNC and winds up with South Carolina. It'd be exciting. It'd be a huge get. Would it be the best thing long-term for Lamont Paris? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. We're also waiting to see what happens in college football with all the moving around of these programs. And as I said earlier this afternoon, it's not going to stop. This is just the beginning. You know, the advantage that I think college football had was the regionality to it, but it's another way that college football is becoming a lot like the NFL, where now it's going to become more of a national sport. Fewer rivalries, less um, road, the road trips are going to be longer, less appealing road trips, I guess you could say. Right, fewer road games that you could realistically go to. You have teams playing all over the country. You lose the the rivalry. You lose that uh, feel of the conference that you've been in for all those years. The community aspect of it all. It's another way college football is becoming like the NFL. They're trying to become a national sport instead of a regional sport. That's what the NFL has always been. That's what college football is turning into with all this moving around. And uh, it's just beginning, and it's not going to end. And we're going to see what the future of college football holds. When we come back, who's in a better position for the future landscape of college football? Who should you be more concerned about when it comes to their spot in the future of college football, Clemson or South Carolina? Clemson's kind of on the outside looking in right now, but they also have the bigger brand and national championships that South Carolina hopes to have. Who's in a better spot? We'll break it down when we come back. Tomorrow Midday Show, right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Everything has a Billy Joe shot a man while Robin is 
Who should we be uh, more concerned about for their spot in the future landscape of college football, Clemson or South Carolina? With all the moving going around in college football these days. The Mar Midday Show with Luke Mora here on ESPN Radio. Uh, we'll get ready for the Braves-Mets coming up in a little bit. That uh, series begins tonight. Should be a lot of fun. But obviously, uh, the big story over the past uh, week has been the future of college football. What's going to come next? What's going to happen down the road? What are we going to eventually wind up with? Because I think we're just getting started here. We're on the bottom floor in all this college football realignment. Here was um, Paul Feinbaum on Get Up with his initial reaction to uh, all this news as he breaks down all the moving going on in college football. Here were Feinbaum's thoughts. That they're going to put uh, softball players on, on a plane and in California to go to Piscataway for a weekend series with Rutgers. But that, but that's where we are, and, and trying to take my cynical hat off, which is impossible today in college athletics, what we have is just a battle of, of the two behemoths, uh, and that's the SEC and the Big Ten. Uh, this is similar to what's going on on Wall Street uh, between the biggest companies vying for uh, your, your dollar, and that's what this is about. This is about money. Uh, pure and simple. Hannah, don't let any college commissioner or president tell you otherwise. They're a greedy bunch. That's what they care about. And the students uh, who p- happen to play athletics are, are the pawn in, in this big prize. Yeah, and I agree with uh, most of that. They were things that I, like I said earlier, about how the sport goes from being regional to national. You're going to have USC go play Rutgers, which isn't really much of an appeal for, for anybody, but certainly the fans of the, the area. At least not USC. For Rutgers, it's a big deal to have USC come to Piscataway, New Jersey, and come play your football team. But you lose the rivalries. You lose the road trips. You lose that kind of community. You've been in the Pac-12 for all these years playing these same teams, and you're used to going to those towns for the road games, and it's not too far, and family can go watch you. You lose a lot of that, and of course it is all about money. As I said earlier, right, we've always made moves based off of finances. That's as old as the currency itself. But there's less, I don't know if shame's the right term. It's just more obvious nowadays. There's no uh, second thought about it. And so all these programs are making the moves based off of money. As Feinbaum said, they're talking about greed. Right? These programs are all greed. And that's why this is not going to stop or end anytime soon. We're going to keep going until we grind this thing down to where we have the best programs all together in the best situation, the best conference. So with all the moving around in college football, who should be more concerned about their future spot in the landscape of college football? Clemson or South Carolina? Now I'll say this. I think the conference that should be most concerned should be the ACC. The Big 12 and the Pac-12 are in the worst spots right now, especially the Pac-12. But I'd rather know what I'm dealing with than have to worry about what may happen. Just like the the saying, a devil you know is better than a devil you don't. The Pac-12, already they now know their issues. Here's what we're losing. Here's what we're going to have to try to do about it. Here's what we're going to have to try to make up. Right Now they have to try to figure out a potential solution. What's next? Meanwhile, the Big 12 has already been plucked. Right, The Pac-12 has been plucked. The Big 12 came up with their plan. Here's the schools we're going to add. We're going to try to make up the difference. The Pac-12 is now going to have to figure that out. And the ACC, they're just sitting there thinking, like, all right, are we next? Are they going to come for us next? And if you're one of those schools in the ACC, you're looking around thinking, like, who's going to leave? What would it mean for the rest of us? Who can we add in the meantime? How can we avoid this? If you're the new 
you know, head of the ACC. You're wondering those same things. Which teams could potentially leave? Can we add Notre Dame? What can we do to avoid this? How can we try to catch up to the Big Ten and the SEC, which, you know, they're making a lot more money than us? But I think it's inevitable that more change is going to come and that teams are going to leave the ACC. It's going to happen. You just don't know who or when. Even Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12, had no idea Texas and Oklahoma were working behind closed doors to leave their conference. He didn't know until... Theoretically, the rest of us. The other programs in the conference, the commissioner, the people in charge, they have no idea either. And so you're just waiting for one day, getting that news of, of it happening. It's a lot like uh, in the show How I Met Your Mother, where there's two characters in particular. Marshall, who, by the way, is a Vikings fan in the show, so I always appreciated that. And then there's Barney, and they do some sort of bet. And Marshall wins the bet against Barney, and he gets to slap him eight times but he can do it like whenever he wants. And so as the show goes on, Barney's always worried about when he's going to get slapped because you don't know when it's going to happen. He doesn't know when the slap is coming. And you're always on edge. The fear in this particular example, the fear of when you'll be slapped is worse than the actual slap. It's like a mental mind game. Getting slapped is one thing. You can take that. You can handle that. But it's the idea of you can't be comfortable because you have no idea when it's going to occur. And that's kind of the ACC. The Pac-12 and the Big 12, they know what their future holds. They know the, the road in front of them that they have to try to conquer. The ACC is sitting there like, all right, are we going to be next? When's it going to happen? Who's it going to happen with? What are we going to have to do? The fear of something occurring, right? It's like uh, ripping off the Band-Aid. Sometimes you just want to rip off the bit. You want to know what the problem is. You want the bad news before the good news. You want to know what you're dealing with. The ACC, they got to sit around and, and wait to get the news that the Pac-12 did about 10 days ago that, hey, by the way, you're losing uh, two big programs. Good luck. An ACC coach told the Athletic in a text message, he said, it is concerning that both the SEC and the Big Ten are strengthening their positions at the expense of the Big 12 and the Pac-12. I hope our league can remain stable throughout the turmoil. Yeah, that may be a big hope. So when it comes to conferences, of course, I think the ACC right now is is uh, the one that should be most concerned. Even though the Pac-12 is in a worse position, even the Big 12 is in a worse position, at least they know uh, the reality. It's like when you go to the doctor and you're waiting for that phone call after, like, you know, get the test results, and you kind of want, as long as it's not something terminal, you want to know what it is so then you can go about your plan to uh, take care of it, take care of the whatever illness, whatever it is that's been ailing you. But the worst part is almost the time in between when you have to wait five days for that phone call and your mind is running amok and you have no idea what that phone call may bring, what the news could be, and you're thinking the worst thing possible. Then you get the news and it's like, all right, that's not great, but at least I know what I have to do to take care of it. And you could go forward with your uh, attack plan. That's the Pac-12 and the Big 12. The ACC is just waiting around for that phone call. Of eventually, one day you wake up, and it's like, all right, they're leaving their conference. Go figure it out now. But when it comes to specific programs, I think Clemson should feel more comfortable about their future than South Carolina, even though South Carolina is in the SEC, and Clemson's kind of on the outside looking in right now. I see a lot of Gamecock fans feeling comfortable about their position. Hey, we're in the, SEC, we're in the, the Cool Kid Club, discussing the idea of, Clemson wants into our conference? Ah, we don't want them here. But when push comes to shove, eventually, maybe years from now, maybe over a decade from now, who knows how long it may take. 
But if we move to a point where you do have the two top conferences, the, the haves and the have-nots, do you think South Carolina would be chosen over Clemson for some sort of power conference? If you're picking the top 25 programs in college football, is South Carolina making that list over a Clemson? Just because South Carolina's in the SEC now doesn't mean they're ultimately safe. Right, like I said uh, earlier this afternoon, I don't think these schools are going to stop until they climb to the very top. They're not just going to settle for like, yeah, oh, this is better than what we had. They're going to keep going until it's the ultimate uh, power conference. And schools like Vanderbilt and USC and Kentucky and maybe those Mississippi schools and maybe even Arkansas, you can't feel too comfortable just because you're in the SEC because you're replaceable as well. Right? Athletes find it out. To bring it back to Freddie Freeman from earlier, right? you find out like yeah, even you are replaceable. They'll go trade for Matt Olson. He's playing pretty well. The Braves have a better record now than they did this time last year at Freddie Freeman. But you can be replaced as well. Gamecocks, Kentucky football, Vanderbilt, like yeah, you're in the SEC right now the most powerful conference, but eventually, someday, you can be replaced as well. You think you're in with the cool crowd, but that's only until they find cooler kids to go hang out with and replace you. South Carolina is in the club that everybody wants to get into, and then you have Richard Grieco show up, and they have to kick some people out of the club so Richard Grieco and his pals can come in, and they look around and they think, like, oh, who are we going to kick out? Right? That's, that would be South Carolina. You're in the club right now that everybody wants to be in. But as soon as cooler, more popular, famous people show up and they have to uh, remove some people to, to, uh, to, to reach that number of maximum people in the club, they're going to come over to your table and say, like, hey, all right, it's time to go. Richard Grieco's here. He's taking your spot instead. Right, South Carolina isn't safe. Clemson may not be where they want to be right now. They may not be in the best position right now in the ACC. But some sort of final product of college football realignment would most likely include Clemson before it includes South Carolina. So long-term, right? you feel better about Clemson's spot in the future of college football with all the moving around. Right now, eh, maybe you're not where you want to be. Maybe you wish you were in the SEC. But down the road, if you're putting together a conference of the best programs or biggest brands, you're probably choosing Clemson over South Carolina. Here was, uh, let's grab that uh, Tony Kornheiser clip on uh, Part of the Interruption. And Tony was talking about this, about now that we have the USC, UCLA, there are two schools left that you need to pay attention to, and Clemson happens to be one of them. Here is Kornheiser. And I would tell you one other thing, Mike. I would tell you that right now the only two teams that matter as to where they're going to end up that are not yet in the SEC or the Big Ten are Notre Dame and Clemson. That's the list, kids. Yeah. That's all there yeah. is. Nothing else matters. Yeah. And I agree with you. There's going to be a 40 or 50 team conference. Yeah, there's geographically separated yeah. top eight teams to the playoffs, national champion, crowned and paid for by television. And this eliminates That's what's coming. Kornheiser on PTI with Michael Wilbon there. I don't know if I agree with everything Kornheiser said there, certainly the second half of it. But I do agree with the first part. I think right now Notre Dame specifically is that white whale. You could put Clemson on the list as well. Of those other schools, that conferences, uh, if they made a wish list, those would be the programs that would be at the top of the wish list. Those are the programs left that they would love to have in their conference. I think Notre Dame's number one. In fact, tomorrow on the show for our Tuesday Top Ten, we'll probably rank the top ten programs left out there that are the most appealing for these conferences. But right now, Notre Dame-Clemson, they may be at the top of the list, one and two that the Big Ten, the SEC, 
they hope to get them. The ACC would love to hold on to Clemson and get Notre Dame in their conference. That would be a, a big get for them. But those are the two programs you now focus on. And if you're trying to build some sort of elite conference, I think you want Clemson in there before you want a South Carolina, even if they're not in the SEC right now. Here was uh, Brandon Marcello of 24-7 Sports talking about uh, this is his take on all the moving around in the Big Ten and the SEC now in this arms race. Here was uh, Marcello's thoughts on college football's realignment. I don't think 16 teams get you there. I think it needs to be 20. And I do think the Big Ten and the SEC will get to 20 teams here in the near future. College football's gone national, and it just makes business sense. There's a lot of money to make out there. The Big Ten and the SEC have separated themselves by far. They're going to trump everybody. The Big Ten already is out-earning the SEC. They're going to be making $150 million, maybe $200 million per team here in the next 10 years, if not more. And you expand to 20 teams, that's going to happen. The Big Ten has five of the top seven television markets nationally right now. Wow. There's a lot of money to be made there. By the way, the Big Ten in negotiations right now to work out a new TV deal. Kevin Warren is going to keep the Big Ten on top of the SEC. And the SEC needs to probably make some moves now, too. It's going to be so fascinating to watch. Brandon Marcello talking about what the future holds, because we're not done yet. And uh, I agree. Remember, the college football is becoming a, a national sport, for better or worse. Now, I'll tell you, I said this earlier, I'm a UConn fan, so what do I care? They're not even a conference anymore. They probably shouldn't be an FBS program. So I actually, you know, this thing, the, all this moving around and the breaking up of con- I personally don't like conference realignment because I'm an old school guy that um, if you listen to the show, right, you know I can be uh, nostalgic. I like the way things were. I wish we just kept, I wish the Big East was still the old Big East. But once you broke up the Big East on me, I what do I care? I'm a UConn fan. You ruined my conference. So now I don't care if these other conferences get ruined too. It doesn't affect me. In fact, it probably makes things better for me as the average college football fan. It gives me better games like uh, USC now playing those Big Ten teams. That's more interesting than them playing the Pac-12. I think if you're a fan of the Pac-12, if you're a fan of even USC, I think it kind of sucks. As just a general college football fan, I think it's good. And so I consider myself nowadays kind of more of just a general college football fan because UConn gives me nothing to root for. So I like these matchups. Do I prefer things to stay the way they were? Yep, but we've already gone too far down that road that at this point I really don't care. Like if you're a Clemson fan, maybe you're a little worried. What does the future hold? What's going to happen to the ACC? I, I really don't care. Put Clemson in the SEC for all I care. It, it'll be fine. You already ruined. I used to love the old Big East with West Virginia and Syracuse and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati before they were making the playoff. And, of course, UConn and South Florida. Even you go back 20 years when they had Virginia Tech and Boston College, those were the good old days. You already ruined my conference. So, you know, an eye for an eye. We can ruin everyone else's conference as well. You ruined the Big East for me 15 years ago. But college football is moving more towards a national sport compared to, I think, the regional sport that it always was and some of the things that you liked most about it. And the other thing that Marcelo said about the TV markets, that's the most damning thing about the Pac. The Pac-12 had seven of the top 30 TV markets and yet still had the worst TV deal. So much malpractice committed by Larry Scott running the Pac-12, and here they are now, you know, falling apart. Who could have saw that coming? But this is not the end of the moving in college football, and we'll see what the next move will eventually be at some point down the road. Eventually, you imagine it will include Clemson as well. When we come back, we'll shift gears because uh, baseball. We don't talk a ton of regular season baseball because the season's so long. 
But tonight begins a really interesting series between the Braves and the Mets, and we'll look ahead to that when we come back. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Braves match tonight should be a lot of fun. We'll look at that series here in just a moment. On uh, Twitter, Brad had sent over the um, All-Star jerseys this year for Major League Baseball. And uh, let me bring it up here. He said, uh, these aren't bad, better than the past couple years. I miss when they just wore the regular uniforms for the All-Star games. I'm looking at these photos here for the first time. Yeah, they aren't bad. Uh, I tell you, the the white uniform here, the Braves uniform, looks a lot better. I don't know. I don't even know where the All-Star game is this year. Uh, Los Angeles. Oh, it's in L.A.? Yep. Dodger Stadium? Dodger Stadium, yes, sir. Yeah. All right. Well, so then I guess, yeah, so I guess the AL will wear these white uniforms, hence the photo of, or the NL, I should say, wearing the white, uh, hence uh, the reason for the photos. Those definitely look better. The white looks better than the gray. But I do agree. And, again, maybe because it's, my nostalgia, and I'm an old-school guy, but I, I love when they used to just wear their regular uniforms. And you could really differentiate the guys. And it just looked cool, all the different jerseys out there on the field at the same time. I'm sure we'll talk more about the All-Star game next week when we actually get to the game a week from um, tomorrow. But, of course, you know, with interleague play and free agency even, it's not as big of a deal, the All-Star game, as it once was. As a kid, I used to love the All-Star game. And that was even with interleague play. But it was still a big deal to see the... Two sides play. Nowadays, eh, I don't know. It's not quite the same. But I think if you put all those guys in the regular uniforms, I do think that helps. It was always great. You see them come out on the field, and you see the different the Braves players and the Mets players and all the different teams line up on the first baseline, and then they go out and they play in the uniforms. I, I'm with you. Now, of course, it's a way to sell more jerseys. You create jerseys for the All-Star game. People buy them, so it's a moneymaker. But uh, I do agree. I wish they just used their regular jerseys. Let the Braves players just wear their regular Braves jerseys. I think that's a better look than these made-up all-star jerseys every year that are usually pretty bland. Speaking of baseball tonight, Braves-Mets. I'm really looking forward to uh, this series. You know, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I was really looking forward to this past weekend. Four games, Red Sox-Yankees at Fenway. Sign me up. I love it. And on the NL side, you're getting right, give me Braves-Mets. Absolutely. The teams that have had the best records in the NL East over the last five years. And now you get the Braves, who are surging, best team in baseball the last six weeks. They're only a game and a half behind the Mets. By the time this series is over, the Braves could be in first place for the first time. So it's a big series, as big a series can be this time of year, because I know there's still so much season left. We're not even at the All-Star break. But when you go back and you look, the teams that win their division are the teams that have the best record against their division. It's pretty simple to understand why, because most of your games are against your own division, and also those games are almost worth two wins, because you get a win and the other team gets a loss. And so you make up two games in the standings compared to you know potentially just one game or no games if the other team wins that night. So it's a twofer. You win, they lose, you make up ground in the stand. These games are always big. So I know it's only July. Uh, we're not even at the All-Star break yet. But Braves-Mets, also the fact that they haven't played in a while, and 
they finish their season now, 20% of the games left of the Braves' schedule are against the Mets. A fifth of their games the rest of the way now are against the Mets. So this is going to be huge the rest of the way, and it begins tonight with uh, the latest series between these two. Then you factor in, again, the Braves are playing really good baseball. Mets, not as much. And uh, a chance for the Braves to leapfrog the Mets for the first time and get into first place for the first time. And that's even just something mentally that you look at the standings, uh, like, wow, we're in first place, right? That's Even though right now they're only a game and a half back, when you get there for the first time and you're in first place for the first time and you jumped over the Mets after the great start the Mets had to this season, uh, even just mentally, right? It's just that's the payoff to how well they've been playing lately. So uh, it should be good baseball. should be a lot of fun. should be uh, important games these next couple of nights. It's always important when these two uh, play one another, especially now the rest of the season. And what's so fascinating is this is why I was saying earlier that you do a lot of waiting around this time of year, even for baseball. The one sport that's actually going on, you wait to see what happens. And it's why we don't talk a ton of regular season baseball because I'm not going to get worked up over a game in May or a slow start because the season's so long. The Braves were 23-27 and 27, um, in May, and they were 10 and a half games behind the Mets. It was the largest lead the Mets ever had in the month of May in franchise history. And yet, fast forward now, about two months at this point, and if the Braves win this series, they'll be in first place. So it's why uh, regular season baseball doesn't get talked a, a lot uh, on uh, uh, just in, in the sports media industry because I could come on here and complain, well, the Braves, they're 10 and a half back. What are they doing? Well, fast forward two months, now they potentially could be in first. So well, it was no use getting all worked up back in May. It's such a long season. But the Braves are the best team in baseball, 29-8 and eight since the start of uh, June. The Mets, meanwhile, 19-16. and 16. They've played 500 ball. Now the big thing for the Mets is you get Scherzer back, who's pitching tonight. Not only do we get a big series, we get a big-time pitching matchup. You get Freed against Scherzer tonight, two of the best pitchers in baseball. That should be great. You also get DeGrom on his way back as well. That's huge for the Mets. They tread water as long as they could without their two best pitchers. And so they ended up playing 500 baseball here the last five weeks, but still able to keep them in first place, and they're in a good position. You know, you wish you still had that 10.5-game lead if you're the Mets, but, hey, you're still in first place right now, and you're getting healthier. That, you know, you'll sign up for that, for the, get ready for the second half of the season with your aces. But the Braves have been playing much better baseball than the Mets of late. The other thing for the Mets, too, is I wouldn't call it flukish, but they got off to such a great start, you know, they're kind of slumping. And every team goes through it, but the Mets were last in the NL in runs scored in June. Their BABIP, which is batting average on balls put in play, that's what that stands for, BABIP, one of those analytics, it dropped 40 points over the past month for the Mets. So, to put that in layman terms, when they put a ball in play, right, when you don't strike out, when you actually make contact, put the ball in play, the first two months of the season, it was leading to a hit 40 points more. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say 300. The Mets were getting a hit 30% of the time. They were batting 300 when they put the ball in play. Well, over the past month, that's dropped 40 points, so now they're batting 260. So it's leading to a hit, you know, 26% of the time instead of 30. You get the idea. So it's dropped 40 points. Um, that's a big difference. So the luck isn't really going their way. Also, their batting average with runners in scoring position has dropped 50 points over the last month. So right now the Mets, they're not very clutch at the plate. They haven't been hitting a ton of home runs, even with Peter Alonso. And um, they haven't had a lot of luck offensively like they did to start the year. So those are their struggles right now. Meanwhile, for the Braves, Michael Harris has been fantastic. He's a little bit like Ronald Acuna. Remember when they called up Acuna in 2018 and then took off? 
uh, similar at Michael Harris. They called it Michael Harris, and now you know they're about to be in first place. So it should be a fun series. Braves trying to get into first. You get Scherzer and Freed tonight. And then the, uh, the last thing I'll mention is the, a little interesting wrinkle that was added yesterday when the Braves acquired Robinson Cano, who's being paid by the Mets. So now you have Cano, who was released by the Mets earlier this year, DFA'd, has a chance to get some revenge on his former team. And not only this week, but the rest of the year. Because, again, the Mets and the Braves still play one another like 15 times the rest of the season. So Cano could try if he you know, has that chip on his shoulder. Maybe he doesn't care. He's getting his money anyways. He's making you know, $25 million this year regardless. He's batting 100. Maybe he doesn't care. But you know, if you've got a guy with a chip on his shoulder there, um, for the Braves it was low risk, really no risk, potentially high reward. You bring in Cano, who at one time was a really good player, and uh, you see if he can help you out with Albies injured. But it'll be interesting. Cano's being added to the roster. His first game at the Braves will be against the Mets. See what he tries to do against his former team. And I always think of the old uh, line from Moneyball with David Justice, who uh, comes to the A's from the Yankees, and he's acting like a big hot shot. And Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, comes to talk to him in the batting cage. And David Justice, uh, or, or Brad Pitt, asks him, like, you think you're special? And David Justice says, well, you're paying me $7 million to be here. And this was what, 2002, so that was a lot more money even back then. He said, you're paying me $7 million to be here, so yeah, I do think I'm pretty special. And Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, says, no, you got that wrong. We're not paying you $7 million. The Yankees are paying half your salary. That's what the Yankees think of you. They're willing to pay you $3.5 million to play against them. That's how little they think of you. And it's similar with Robinson Cano. The Mets are paying him $20 million now to play against them. That's how little they think of you. So if that doesn't get you fired up, uh, you know, if you're Robinson Cano, then maybe you shouldn't be playing the game anymore. But we'll see what uh, he can add to the Braves. But I'll be locked in. It'll be fun to watch these games the next couple of nights. Nice measuring stick. Braves have been playing great baseball. Haven't played the Mets in, a, in over a month. Get to see how they do against New York this week. A chance to jump into first place. And an all-star pitching matchup tonight with Freed and Scherzer. Should be a lot of fun. So I'll be looking forward to those games. And uh, what Robinson Cano could potentially add. In the meantime... We'll wrap up your Monday when we come back. It's the more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Wrapping up your Monday and the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page and you can find the show podcasted there. You can always take the Morrow Midday Show with you as well. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or a free app, ESPN Charleston in the App Store. Search ESPN Charleston, and there you can uh, download the app for free and listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world through the app ESPN Charleston. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least nine different states and multiple countries on this Monday. 
had to run through that for the first time in a while. I almost forgot where you can listen to the show. So many options for you. Good to be back after uh, taking some uh, time off. And um, we'll see what happens with the Braves and the Mets tonight as they begin that series with Freed and, and uh, Scherzer. Should be a lot of fun. The over-under is seven, right? You would think it's going to be a real pitcher's duel. Not a lot of run score tonight. Both guys, if you combine their ERA, you're still around maybe five. Obviously, they're not pitching the entire game, but you're getting pretty close. Um, so keep an eye on that. If you're somebody who bets, it looks like 73% of the bets are on the under. What do you always do? You always fade the public. So maybe tonight will be a little higher scoring than you would anticipate between Freed and Scherzer tonight in Atlanta. But uh, whatever happens, uh, we'll uh, break it all down. Hey, tomorrow on the show, we'll talk about, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, and that applies to conference realignment in college football and also the NBA. And a lot of these NBA guys now using their power, I don't think it's great for the league. We'll talk about that. Plus, Zion Williamson got paid big time. And at some point, maybe tomorrow, we're going to have to get to the Zach Wilson story. We're going to have to be a little uh, sophomoric here. And spend a few moments on the Zach Wilson stuff because that is an unbelievable story that came out over the weekend. If you're not familiar, uh, just go online. The amount of memes and tweets and videos cracking jokes on Zach Wilson have been tremendous. I've been laughing all morning watching these things. So we're going to have to talk about that at some point. Probably tomorrow on the show. we got a lot to do. We'll get to our top ten list tomorrow as well. Which schools in college football are the most appealing to be added to conferences? We're just getting started this week. It's good to be back. In the meantime, if you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on the man search, ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. Tomorrow, midday show on ESPN Radio.